you know, I've got, you know, a number of interesting projects that are kind of, you know, out there. And I, and I realize that what you need to do is kind of, I call it kind of the equation of curiosity, where it's like dreams are the breeding grounds for adventures, adventures are the breeding grounds for stories, and stories inspire more dreams. And that entire equation is pushed through by asking questions. And so to me, the first stage of any adventure is dreaming about it. And then the second stage is, of the adventure is talking about it. And as soon as you talk about it, it materializes. People grab onto it. It becomes real. That's adventurer and environmentalist David DeRothschild, who joins filmmaker Sasha Gervasi this week on The Rich Roll Podcast. The Rich Roll Podcast. Hey, everybody. How are you guys doing? What's going on? My name is Rich Roll. I am your host. Welcome or welcome back to the podcast, the show where I have the great fortune of going deep and long form with some of the most interesting, some of the most compelling, some of the most provocative, positive change makers all across the globe. And today is no exception. This episode is incredibly interesting. It's very different, totally unique, more like some kind of uh, West L.A. freeform Algonquin roundtable with two extremely uh, perceptive and extraordinarily charismatic minds. Uh, Sasha Gervasi is somebody that I have been very good friends with in Los Angeles for uh, most of my tenure here. I think we've been buddies for like 16 or 17 years. Uh, Sasha is a filmmaker. He's a writer-director perhaps best known for a documentary called Anvil, the story of Anvil, which is sort of a rockumentary about an also-ran Canadian heavy metal band. You can kind of think of it like a real-life spinal tap. Uh, But beneath that, it's really this beautiful expression, this beautiful work of art about what it means to have and hold on to a dream. Uh, It's really quite something. Uh, The movie premiered at Sundance in 2008. It was incredibly well-received and critically acclaimed. It's got like a 98% on Rotten Tomatoes. The Times UK called it possibly the greatest film yet made about rock and roll. So if you have not seen this documentary yet, uh, I mentioned it in one of my roll calls a couple weeks ago. You definitely have to check it out. In fact, you should just hit pause on this podcast right now, go watch it, and come back and listen to this later for context. Uh, Beyond Anvil, in 2004, Sasha wrote a script called The Terminal. It caught the eye of a little-known filmmaker named Steven Spielberg, who went on to direct it, starring Tom Hanks. Uh, And then in 2012, Sasha directed a movie himself called Hitchcock, starring Anthony Hopkins, Helen Mirren, and Scarlett Johansson. So that should give you some context of the level of talent and gravitas that is Sasha Gervasi. Uh, He's also attached to some pretty interesting projects. We get into that in the context of the conversation. But who is this David DeRothschild guy? Well, in addition to being Sasha's brother-in-law and the youngest heir to quite the family banking fortune, David is a super interesting and interested. He's one of those people that is not only engaging, he's engaged, right? If you catch my drift, uh, David is a world adventurer. He's an environmentalist. He's an ecologist. He's a storyteller. He's a provocateur. He's one of those people that's active in more causes and expeditions and ventures and nonprofits than you can possibly count. Uh, But perhaps he's best known for his 2010 Pacific crossing in a 60-foot catamaran made entirely out of reclaimed plastic bottles, like 12,500 
plastic bottles and recycled materials. Uh, and we get into this interesting project in the course of uh, the conversation, but it was dubbed Plastiki. And it's just one of many expeditions David has created and accomplished in the interest of raising awareness around issues of global environmental uh, concern. In 2006, he spent over 100 days crossing the Arctic from Russia to Canada. He's one of only 14 people to ever traverse the continent of Antarctica. He's part of the team that broke the world record for the fastest ever crossing of the Greenland ice cap. He's written a few books. He's won all kinds of awards like uh, the Emerging Explorer Award by National Geographic. He uh, was nominated as a young global leader by the World Economic Forum in 2007. He was named one of GQ Magazine's Men of the Year in 2009. He was named by the United Nations Environment Program as a climate hero. So, look, this is just it, the list goes on and on and on, right? It's just this is just the tip of the iceberg of who this guy is and all of the things that he has his hands in. But first, let's acknowledge the awesome organizations that make this show possible. We're brought to you today by On. I am a total gearhead. I love researching the latest technology for the sports I enjoy. And I've learned that people often overlook apparel, but what you wear isn't just clothes. It is without a doubt technology. Technology that can make or break a performance. And I can tell you after spending two full days meeting with the apparel wizards at On Labs in Zurich, that On is innovating in this space like no other with next-gen premium fabrics, and just this heightened level of sophistication and precision and testing and development and intentionality previously unheard of that puts them just miles beyond the competition. I've been rocking On's high-performance running apparel, including the long tees, the weather jackets, even the climate jacket, all super lightweight, tailor-fit, built to move, and just gorgeous to get you out and get it done in fleet foot comfort, no matter the weather. I'm super proud to be a brand partner with this impressive team from increasing product sustainability to improved energy return and impact protection, truly Swiss innovation at its finest. To get you moving, On is offering an exclusive 10% discount. To redeem, head over to on.com slash richroll and use code richroll10 at checkout. We're brought to you today by recovery.com. I've been in recovery for a long time. It's not hyperbolic to say that I owe everything good in my life to sobriety. And it all began with treatment and experience that I had that quite literally saved my life. And in the many years since, I've in turn helped many suffering addicts and their loved ones find treatment. And with that, I know all too well just how confusing and how overwhelming and how challenging it can be to find the right place and the right level of care, especially because unfortunately, not all treatment resources adhere to ethical practices. It's a real problem, a problem I'm now happy and proud to share has been solved by the people at recovery.com who created an online support portal designed to guide, to support and empower you to find the ideal level of care tailored to your personal needs. They've partnered with the best global behavioral health providers to cover the full spectrum of behavioral health disorders, including substance use disorders, depression, anxiety, eating disorders, gambling addictions, and more. Navigating their site is simple, 
search by insurance coverage, location, treatment type, you name it. Plus, you can read reviews from former patients to help you decide. Whether you're a busy exec, a parent of a struggling teen, or battling addiction yourself, I feel you. I empathize with you. I really do. And they have treatment options for you. Life in recovery is wonderful, and recovery.com is your partner in starting that journey. When you or a loved one need help, go to recovery.com and take the first step towards recovery. To find the best treatment option for you or a loved one, again, go to recovery.com. I'm super proud to announce my next venture, Voicing Change Media. This beautiful consortium of thinkers, storytellers, artists, and visionaries all committed to fostering meaningful exchanges and sharing thought-provoking content. Voicing Change Media will feature shows like The Proof with Simon Hill, Soul Boom with Rain Wilson, Mentor Buffet with Alexi Pappas, Feel Better Live More with Dr. Rangan Chatterjee, and The Conversation with Amanda Decadene. You can explore this network and all its offerings at voicingchange.media. All right, back to business. Uh, this is just a super fun episode. I don't know what else to tell you. It's light. I love it. It's totally, um, totally different than anything I've ever done before, basically because both of these guys have just amazing personalities. Um, and I love it. Uh, we did it in David's pretty spectacular work live loft space in Venice. Uh, the conversation meanders a bit all over the place in this one. But if I had to boil it down to a few themes, I would say that this conversation is about the power of story, the power of story to lift the human spirit, to speak truth to power, to incite positive change, and elicit certain truths about who we are and what we're meant to do and be. So with all that said, uh, I barely scratched the surface with Sasha and David, uh, and I really hope to have them back on individually in the future so I can get a more focused idea of what makes these guys tick and all the amazing things that they're involved in. So without further ado, let's just jump into it. Ladies and gentlemen, please enjoy my conversation with Sasha Gervasi and David DeRocha. Are you guys ready to rock? Yeah. Oh, yeah, man. Dude, I don't even know where to start with this bizarre alliance <laughs> that I have sitting here before me. Sasha Gervasi. <laughs> yeah, where to even begin? Still on the phone. I'm still on the phone. I'm just I know. Will you put your phone away? I'm putting it away. Oh, we're doing a fucking ball. This was your idea. He's sexting me. Yeah, well, we originally, here's the thing. We were, well, I just said, like, we got to have lunch. we got to have lunch, and so this is what happened. Right, so here right, we so are. We, here we are recording. Basically, we're recording our lunch. Yeah. Banjo's yeah. here. We're having a good Except time. Except it's a food-free hopefully, lunch. Hopefully, yeah, eat. Yeah. <laughs> Right? One of your fitness lunches. I know. How to get fit, don't eat anything. Right. How to get slim, just don't eat anything. That's right. That's what we're doing. I'm a breatharian. I'm inspired by my... That's my brother-in-law. I know. That's the whole thing, isn't it? Yes. family. I know. I understand that. It's funny because, Sasha, I've known you... How long have we known each other now? I think probably Probably 15. Oh, it's going to be... I think it's longer than that. It's like 18 years. Yeah. Okay, it's a long time. Uh Uh-huh. And David... I wasn't born then. I know. You weren't born then yet. But I was following you when you were in utero. (laughs) Probably before Sasha had ever met you. 
So I've been tracking. I'd never heard of him before he became my brother. Before. <laughs> I was like, who the fuck is this guy? And now, what is going on? You guys have some kind of collaboration that I you're working know, on right now. We're, we're it's all it's so very, top secret. We yeah, decided like we can't secret. even talk about it because it's too super top secret. We do have an idea that we're working on, uh-huh. and that is sort of the bonding us but together. It's so we, private. It's so top secret that only certain Eastern European governments are actually aware of what it really is. Yeah, if you go on to the NSA, will tell you all about it. Yeah, they will. No, we do have something. It's exciting, but we can't get into it too much because yeah. really we still don't know what the fuck we're talking about we're still figuring yeah, it out but it's big Huge. it could be what do you think dave i don't know yeah i think so i yeah. mean or it could be really small or it could be, be tiny be it, could be, it could be a midget of an idea yeah, yeah, it could i'm be getting really a very small. crystal clear picture now <laughs> what's happening like in the dog no, there is something the there is something but for a later podcast I right think yeah. for today we'll just focus on the dog eating yeah, the, microphone, the microphone yes which is what's going on right Andrew's now fascinating so rich paint a so picture for us where are we what are we doing we are in david's fantastic uh venice uh studio slash Living space slash Lost workspace. Explorer yes. launch pad slash. It's like, how would you dis- describe the aesthetic of this pad, Sasha? Yeah, he can paint a nice picture. In two words. Yeah, I'm feeling it's very Peter Beard to me. <laughs> you know? I would say the two words that spring to mind are just shit sandwich. <laughs> shit sandwich. Yeah, which yeah, is yeah. also Spinal Tap's second album. Yeah, I think yeah. so. No, I think it's amazing. I mean, I, I every time it's, I come here, it's a gluten free shit sandwich. <laughs> every time I every time I come here, there is something different, and it's been improved, and it gets bigger, and it's wonderful. I mean, the art you have here is extraordinary. You have incredible art. It's very yeah, maybe I'll just drop uh, the well appointed and, and bespoke. <laughs> so it kind of cap it, it it captures the aesthetic of the Lost Explorer. I think right. We Actually, just, Dave, I want to know this because the... we were going to have lunch. I was going to ask Dave this myself. Yeah, tell us what is the Lost Explorer? What is the whole? Where does it come from? What are you doing? It's a, it's a good question. I don't, I mean, you know. Try to be right up on the mic a little trying bit, Trying to be on David. the mic. Sorry, I'm knocking over it's my okay. unicorn man who's got, got a, he's puking a rainbow. <laughs> um, the, um, the Lost Explorer. So I, I think it kind of came from really just a sort of a collection of ideas over years of working with different brands and kind of not being that inspired anymore to sort of necessarily sell something that you don't believe in mm-hmm. um so you know if, if you get sponsored to do expeditions and after a while you're sitting there you know presenting something on behalf of a brand and you're really a marketing whim you know you're you're you're, you're as good as that season's you know um investment in a message and then as soon as that ends you end up being you know pushed to the wayside and if you're passionate and you invest in you know the stories that you believe in and then all of a sudden you're told sorry we've changed direction mm-hmm. then it's it, it seems inauthentic to then find another brand that you want to try and tie into right and right so i got kind of you know i thought well if i'm going to do all this why not try and just build something that i believe in that kind of epitomizes a lifestyle that i believe in and the lifestyle that i'm living so the lost explorer is kind of built on um, this kind of notion of working in partnership with nature and saying if nature is a magician we've all got to start believing in magic again and I love magic because magic is a space in which holds a sense of wonder and curiosity mm-hmm. that is integral to the brand the brand is living curiously right and cur- curiosity is an emotion right and I think that's something that we both share I mean yeah. you share a curiosity of stories and the curiosity of, Char- of, of characters and how do you you know weave those together 
to create a sense of magic, which mm -hmm. is either through film and through, for me, it's through adventure, it's through products, it's through, you know, creating a new partnership with the planet. And I have nature. to say I was super impressed because I just saw the, the clothing line. And right. it's, it's, you know, even in it, I mean, obviously without sounding ridiculous, but it even tells a narrative in the way that things are designed. I mean, it's incredible. I mean, the best part of just reviewing the product line is I know I'm going to get a new preponderance wardrobe. of it for <laughs> fucking are, free. Yeah, I, for I mean, that was really awesome. Actually, no, there's no, a 20% but... <laughs> hike for you. 20% hike? Yeah, yeah. I'm are. a fucking relative. Yeah, no, exactly. That's the point. Add my, okay. No, but seriously, <laughs> the clothes are extraordinary. I mean, they really are, man. I'm actually really impressed because Rich and I, just before this began, we walked through some of the product lines and it's a vast array of stuff. It's, it's sort of men's clothes. It's kind of, you even have a tequila. You have mm, bath products. Bath products. Mm. You have sort of nutritional stuff. It's kind of a phenomenal thing and it's bound together with this you know, by the single single idea, right? That you're yeah. of connection to nature. And as John was showing us some of the designs that he's done, I guess your designer, you know, he was saying this 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 is all natural dyes. And I was pretty impressed that the color was that. It yeah. Was yeah, clothing awesome. dyed with, with coffee beans. Yeah, and with coffee, black tea, teas. green tea, hibiscus. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think there's a thing, isn't there, where, you know, it's like we need another brand, like we need a hole in the head. Right. You know, we don't need more stuff, right? And that's that's kind of the sort of the the the... the the antagonistic relationship mm -hmm. that I have to play with in my head right. the whole time, which is like, we don't need more stuff. And yet we're making stuff. And so, you know, the first thing people say is, well, if you're doing it really for nature, surely you shouldn't make anything else. And then mm -hmm. you realize that that's, you know, sort of antithetical to the whole way that we're geared. You know, right. we're geared in society to consume, right? Whether we like it or not, you know, everything about every single day, that we are, you know, walking through these journeys in life, and and we're being extracted from at every di every different juncture, right? And, you know, so that's not going to change. And for me, it was about saying, well, how do we, how do we find something that maybe just twists on that, you know, that notion or that idea of consumption being just slightly better. Right. Not saying we're perfect. Not saying we're going to get it right from the gate. You know. So when we introduce natural dyes or we introduce materials that are you know, more sympathetic to, you know, the natural cycle and nature. It's exciting, but it's challenging. And, you know, you're trying to break new ground with things. And, and ultimately, you know, our jackets aren't going to save the world. Our pants aren't going to save the world. Our creams aren't going to save the world. They might make you smell nice well, speak and for look yourself, nice. Dave. My pants, yeah. are but it represents it represents yeah. an, but, but an it's, ideal. It's, it's, it's an ideal. We all have to wear clothes. Hopefully, yeah. Well, right? you, well, you don't. Sasha you don't actually. You don't. I mean, Sasha's right. Sasha's in fact, the only one right now. I'm just, you know. He's the only one that I wish would wear clothes. It's uh -huh. chilly in here, is all <laughs> right. I will say in Venice. Um, but I was most impressed. There was one single item, the bright white jacket made of pure rock cocaine. Yeah, that was good, that wasn't it? That was fantastic. Yeah, yeah. That was a good jacket. Yeah. I'm um, going to take that abroad you and should. make some it gets, it gets, it gets a lot of, um, It gets a lot of interest, that one. For some reason, I can't understand why. It makes people really chatty. <laughs> what do you is think it, of all the products we've chat jacket. today? Which do you think, is there, is there any one that you think is going to be sort of a signature Lost Explorer product in terms of the thing that you think people will associate the brand with you know i mean i think at this stage you hope that there isn't um i mean i say hope there isn't i mean i, I say that i i hope that there is a um there's a, an equal weighting to the stories as there is to the product right mm -hmm. and so actually crafting stories and trying to figure that out is 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 a challenge and i think the first product that kind of came to mind was the mezcal and the reason why mezcal is because mezcal is a spirit that you share around stories right so it's you know if you take tequila being the younger brother and 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 mezcal is the older wiser sister and tequila is sort of synonymous with 
you know, slam, you know, wham, bam, thank you, ma'am. It's kind of almost like the American culture, right? It's like, you know, people slam them back. They take a bit of salt and a bit of lime and then pull a stupid face and get fucked up as quickly as possible. Mm-hmm. Whereas mezcal is about sipping and stories. It's about a campfire. It's about consideration. It's about, you know, having a moment with people and sharing a moment. So for me, the mezcal is interesting because it's an ingestible and it's like, you know, you're, you're giving someone something that they can, you know, almost, they're right. drinking the Kool-Aid, but they're drinking the mezcal, right? <laughs> and I think it's interesting because it's, it's, again, it paints the kind of variety that we want in terms of the product range and, and how we want people to just live a more curious lifestyle across lots of different products. And I think that's the challenge with anything nowadays. You know, we're bombarded by so many messages, we're bombarded by so many moments in our everyday lives. And that's what I was saying earlier, it's like, how do you, how do you encapsulate that and how do you change the, the partnership? How do you change the, the relationship um, right. a little bit? And I think that's where stories come in, right? And, you know, we are overstoried, <laughs> you know? So mm. it's about making stories that stand out and stories that really are grounded in human context, right? I mean, it's the human story that is always the most fascinating. I mean, I was watching last night, I don't know if you've seen it, but the, the O.J. Simpson documentary. Oh, yeah, mm-hmm. it's one of the best things I've seen. It's one Incredible. of the best things I've seen, and you, you look yeah. at this thing and you could not make that up. Yeah. I mean, you could not make up that story. Yeah. I mean, if you made that story up and wrote it as a film and presented it people to, wouldn't people it. wouldn't it's believe it. They say it's absolutely unbelievable. It's, but, it's probably the best but, thing I've seen all year. O.J. Made in America, it's, yeah. a, it's a five, I think a five-part five part documentary, ESPN. watched it in one go in seven and a half hours, and it was extraordinary. It's extraordinary, yeah, and, 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 but at the very heart of it is this human struggle right this human story this human element and i think that is ultimately what when you strip everything down the most fascinating and the most connected thing that we have is that that notion of of belonging to a tribe that human connection right mm-hmm. we're on a planet in the middle of nowhere right there's nothing else out there that we know of yet <laughs> that can support life right. as we know it. your eyes pop out of your head and your head you know sets on fire in seconds if you leave this atmosphere we're on this beautiful ball of, 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 you know, the spaceship Earth. And, you know, the, the, the thing that we often forget about because we're taught, be individual, be, you know, be unique, be something else and, 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 and swim upstream. And for a lot of people that actually is intimidating. And I think when you really get into it, it's actually those moments that, where you can belong to something, the mm-hmm. idea of a connected tribe, an idea of a human story, you know, to me is, is really what it all boils down to is like how do you find those, those relationships and those stories I think it's interesting because I think the, the, the similarities are always greater than the differences yeah. You know? yeah. like people present as being incredibly different but actually we I'm all have dreams it. hopes, yeah. fears you know we all have families and I think it's you're right finding that connective tissue is what makes I think a great story that speaks to people beyond a, sing, a single demographic and you know I think it's interesting what you're doing because what you're doing with your brand is sort of similar to you know yeah. what, what people like you know if as a filmmaker you try and connect people that's sort of the point yeah. you know you want people to have a group experience and and feel something and um yeah it's 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 an interesting point in the world i think sasha as a you know master storyteller yourself i mean your projects how much did my mother send you that check she Stop did yes rich. i love your mom <laughs> uh you know your stories vary in terms of genre and tone but there is that uh, consistent theme of humanity that, and the, and the humorous side of humanity that, that runs through all the work that you do. Uh, and it's very, it, I never walk away from anything that you've done without feeling impacted emotionally, like feeling moved by it. And, you know, David, for your part, I feel like there's this ethos of inclusivity that has run through all these various 
projects and adventures that you've gone on. And as an environmentalist and somebody who's done, you know, traveled to all these crazy parts of the world and traversed the Arctic and the Antarctic and, you know, sailed the plastiki across the Pacific and all these things that you've done, it would be very easy for people to sort of categorize you as, as somebody who is an inaccessible person, right? And I think as an environmentalist, it's easy to create those walls and separate and say, you know, these are good people, these are bad people. But your message seems to me, and correct me if I'm wrong, has always been one of inclusion, like trying to make it accessible to bring people into whatever adventure you're on or the storytelling that is entailed with that. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't, um, you, you know, it's it's nice to have a, someone else's viewpoint on it. But I, I think the worst thing about the environmental movement ultimately has been the environmental movement. I mean, it perversely has made, um, you know, um, I when I when I first started getting interested in it, my, my sort of entry point was actually more through um, my degree. In, I did a degree in natural medicine on naturopathy mm-hmm. and you are what you eat and you are what you breathe. And you know, my body is still definitely, you know, it swings between being a nightclub and a temple, um, you know, and it's, um, it's that balance, right? And I think that, you know, the, 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 the big problem I saw in the environmental movement was that there was an air of worthiness, exclusiveness, there was a sort of, a, as you said, a right and wrong. And it's, and it's, it's not, it's, it's many shades, right? None mm-hmm. of us are perfect. All of us have an impact. The, the planet is going to be just fine. It's, it's whether or not we want to live on it in a certain um, way that can support us you mm-hmm. know are we smart enough to figure out that actually without clean air and without clean water and without you know food that's covered in chemicals um, you know, if we don't have you know sorry you know those things and we you know we can't live on this planet as we know it and we're destroying our ability to live on this planet and it can be told with you know doom and gloom and i think you know the environmental movement's been very good at being the, the sort of the undertaker of the wilderness right you know publishing statistics mm-hmm. on um you know the demise of nature and we've created this false dichotomy that there's nature in us and we've created this external sort of you know conversation that's like nature's out there and we go home and we love nature right i mean everyone loves nature i've never seen anyone mm-hmm. you know say i'm so happy that dolphin got it you know what i mean and right. let's go and fuck up that whale you know what i mean no one's ever like yeah i'm like man i got such a boner today i cut down five trees you know what i mean like no, no one's like getting off on killing nature um <laughs> But but there, I bet there not, is. We're never not in nature, there though. There's this but idea that... Exactly. So know, we right. are nature. We are mm-hmm. part of the system. We are fundamentally ingrained in it. And so it, for me, I sat there and I said, look, I can dive into stories that are really specific or I can try and in some way elevate and celebrate nature, right? Give nature a voice. Nature has a voice, but we just sometimes don't listen because we're so bombarded with other voices and other noises and and, and, and the daily, you know, grind, right? I mean, it's like, you know, there's a lot of shit going on in everyone's daily lives. And I remember one time standing in this... Um, this bread line in the middle of Russia in a place called Norilsk, which if you put a pin in the middle of Russia is literally right in the center. And there's this queue of women all standing in these big fur coats and it's freezing cold, it's about minus 40. We're, we're, we're delayed before we head off on our, on, our, on our trip to the North Pole. And I'm standing there in like my Gore-Tex, freezing my balls off. And um, I'm looking at this woman and she's kind of laughing back at me and I'm like, poor bear, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and she just, in her very broken English said, you know, when you, have, when you think of environment, you don't think of anything else. You, you have nothing, you have no other problem. Right. Mm -hmm. So she's like, when you're when you're thinking about the environment, you have no other problem to think about. And I think that's a general consensus that, you know, it's all good and well to sit on your high horse and say, drive a Prius, 
put solar panels on your roof, change your light bulbs and tell people what they shouldn't do or what they should do and be sort of, you know, um, rather dictatorial about it. But the reality is that actually it's for you, as you know, change comes from within. It comes from your own curiosity, your own desire to make differences in your life, to live a healthier lifestyle, to live more harmonious. And I've always felt that a really good way to kind of crack that nut is through humor. I mean, it's something you've done, Sash, with your films a lot, you know, is using, you know, serious stories, serious human context stories, but using humor, using, you know, to disarm people, to allow people not to feel intimidated because if people feel intimidated by the subject matter they're not going to go any deeper and most of the subject matter that we portray is you know these boring long reports that are intimidating intellectually and that they are the preserve of your life well yeah, yeah they make you feel bad about your life and they really satisfy you know they're they're, they're there as a sort of a, a, a sort of an intellectual wank fest for phd you know mm-hmm. professors to you know compare notes versus actually saying how do we just break this down and go look if you cut down trees, there's a finite amount of them. If you continue to do it, then the air we breathe becomes more polluted and we all get cancers and we all end up getting sick, right? So like, it's really simple. You know, go into a classroom of five-year-olds and they'll give you all the, all the answers you need to know to every environmental problem. So maybe I resonate with five-year-old mindsets better than I do with adult mindsets. I think that says a lot. Yeah. <laughs> And that's but there's been part of my conversation. And so <laughs> I could have written, a, you know, people said to me, why didn't you just write a report about plastic in the ocean and do mm-hmm. a recycling campaign? And I was like, well, you know, plastic in the ocean sounds really boring, but if I'm going to build a boat out of plastic bottles, there's potential that I might die. That creates drama. Drama yeah. creates good stories. There's a, there's a protagonist that's there. That's right. You know, I think and, one of the... And, and that's the, f- the thing, right? I mm-hmm. totally agree. One, I think one of the first dates with your sister, I came to San Francisco to Salsalita to see yeah. the launch of Plastic. <laughs> And I remember my wife saying, you've got to meet my brother, you know, he's, you know. Before he dies. Before he dies. And so I remember standing on this quayside and he's on this boat that literally looks like a sort of, you know, Evian bottle with uh-huh. a few buoys on it. Yeah. And he's got like all these, you know. When he means boys, he means buoys. Buoys, sorry. There were yeah. a few and he boys. also had some small boys. Little boys, small boys. On oh, but what was that? that, was, that was, there were all these kind of Samoan wrestlers in kind of, what, who were those guys? They were, they were, um, they, they were delivering us some takeaway. So imagine you meet your future the, brother-in-law. He's standing on a giant bottle of and there are some uh-huh. Samoan ros- wrestlers being blessed by a priest with yeah. some sort of incredibly Lay. large explosive turban. Yeah. And I'm like, who is this flipping nutcase? Right. Well, I, fir- I first like, heard about... Uh, it was insane, but you know what? And then he went off to sea and he didn't... I know. He, didn't he disappeared for how long did that yeah, whole voyage? Four, four months. I want to get into that. But I, I, first, I, f- I first heard about what you were doing in Plastiki when my college buddy, Nathaniel Corum, uh, came by to visit my house and we were catching up and he was telling me about all these he's an architect and all these amazing projects that he was working on building sustainable houses on Indian reservations and traveling to all kinds of crazy parts of the world but he had just completed design on the cabin for Plastiki and he was telling me all about it and that's when I started looking into what you were up to and yeah. it's just amazing so if you could indulge us sort of take us through what that was all about and yeah, I mean, the cabin design was really... Um, I mean, not the cabin per se, just yeah, the yeah. whole plastic. He just wants to talk about the <laughs> I just want to talk about the yeah, cabin. Yeah. You know, have you, you where all the, the fun NBA, happens. Yeah. It's just about the cabin. But no, I mean, I think the cabin design is a good place to start because it was actually inspired by um, uh, Buckminster Fuller. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, that was a design kind of nod that I wanted to include in that, mainly because of his, um, you know, his kind of coining of the phrase spaceship earth in 1963 he was the one who kind of really popularized that 
you know, conversation. This was a year after Rachel Carson's Silent Spring in 1962, which was one of the seminal publications to spawn the environmental movement. And, um, you know, he said, you know, we, it, it's got to be everybody or nobody. We cannot mm -hmm. live on this planet for much longer unless we see it as a connected system. And that connected system, I think, is really was kind of, you know, transferred into the boat adventure, right? Because we needed to create a connected system for living. It was our spaceship on the ocean. And that was, you know, the kind of the, the, the sort of starting point was like, how do you manage your food, your shelter, your water and your energy on something where, um, you know, you have to live in a confined space. It was like, you know, the first port of call we actually did was go to NASA and speak to them up at NASA Ames up in the Bay Area mm. and had some amazing conversations with them and got shown how to drink our own piss and all these kind of like incredible things. It's like, this is Sounds awesome. like a fun weekend. Dude. It was a great weekend. It was, it, we, I stayed back and got some extra glasses and <laughs> I remember getting peed on and it was good times, good times. <laughs> um, but the, uh, the um, scientist was super sweet. He was very gentle. No, um, they were, <laughs> we, uh, we, you know, we, we really took this approach that, you know, that, that waste is often, um, you know, kind of labeled waste, but is really it's about resource management. And so the plastic he started out actually very early on. Um, I came back from the North Pole in 2006, trying to cross the Arctic Ocean. It was, you know, 110 days living on the Arctic Ocean, 16 dogs trying to traverse from Russia to Canada. Mm. And about two weeks later, I'm sitting around um, with some friends talking about the trip and trying to kind of explain to them what it's like to live on the Arctic Ocean. And I sat there and I was like, it's amazing, you know, a couple of, you know, hot meals later and a hot shower and a warm bed and, you know, um, you know, a couple of uh, long, long sleeps, you, you kind of detach yourself from that adventure. And so here we were trying to use these adventures as a medium to educate and inform people about fragile ecosystems. And yet I'd lived there for 110 days and felt totally detached from that story. Mm -hmm. um, and so I was like, well, if I'm going to start another adventure, then I need to find a story that can be grounded in something that everybody can feel and see and be part of. And so the conversation came around um, waste and the idea that we have this kind of waste footprint in our everyday lives. No matter how green you are, no matter how you know um, hard you try, every single thing we touch creates an imprint, right? And so I was like, that's a really interesting place to start. And then when I started researching, I came across this um, obscure line inside of a, a, a report that the UN had put out about the, the, the biodiversity and the, and the state of our, our, our deep oceans. Mm -hmm. And in it was this line that said, there's 46,000 items of plastic on or below every square mile of our oceans. And I thought that's gotta be a misprint. How can there be 46,000 items of plastic? And when I started search, re researching that, I realized actually that was a conservative estimate. And in fact, you know, for me, the best thing about going into the plastics space was that no one really knew the statistics, which means I could make them all up, mm. <laughs> which is always fun. <laughs> they say 70% of statistics are made up on the spot. And I would say that jokingly, you know, in talks, and I still say that jokingly in talks with people, because it's kind of absurd that we don't know we don't even know how much plastic is in our ocean. We don't know the effects of it. We're only now seeing the effects of it. It's crazy that we system. don't know. We don't know. We just don't know. And there's a reason we don't know, because we, one, think about that, you know, we, as an individual, you put your rubbish, your waste into a bin. If you're a little bit more responsible, maybe you separate it. And then it goes. It's just a way. Mm -hmm. It goes to a place called a way. 
So there's a detachment between my action of consumption and what happens to that end of life story. Where does it go? And so to get people to be engaged in, in that end of life story is really, really hard, let alone to say, well, now it's going into the ocean. And once it's in the ocean, you start to think about the scale of the ocean, right? I mean, we got it wrong by calling it planet Earth. We probably should have called it planet ocean because, you know, our planet is covered by the majority of it, 78% is, is, is ocean, right? And for those of you out there smoking weed right now, yeah. your mind just got blown. Yeah, boom. <laughs> totally boom. boom. Planet yeah. ocean. Planet I'd ocean. Just let that resonate. Yeah. Okay, take another hit. <laughs> well, most people have heard of the giant floating, you know, flotsam of plastic the size of Texas somewhere, you know, in an obscure corner of the Pacific. But it's right? not so obscure anymore, mm -hmm. right? I mean, so what, and that is where it became, the conversation was like, there's a floating planet, uh, a floating island of plastic. You know, and I always would laugh. I'm like, you know, that's where kind of Tupac and Princess Diana and Elvis and all right. these guys are hiding out on their little island, having a, right, a well of a time. Um, but it's, it's basically wherever we have a convergent zone in our oceans, wherever there are currents that converge. So there's eight major gyres in our ocean. And that effectively, the best way to describe it is if you're sitting in a jacuzzi and... Um, which you often do, right? Sasha does a lot. Sasha does. Sasha's a big jacuzzi sitter. <laughs> I know. It's, I'm just laughing I, because Sasha's such a tenderfoot. Like yeah. Sasha's the kind of guy who likes to lounge in his bathrobe and yeah. slippers. Totally. And then we have David talking about exactly. going to the North Pole. But I imagine that if I was <laughs> like, to, but I imagine if I was to lift up Sasha's shirt right now and I was to look inside his belly button, I'd probably find quite a, an accumulation of fluff from his pajamas. <laughs> because there's a, imagine a right? convergence of currents. So when there, Sasha basically, yeah. So when so Marks when and Spencer's by the way, yeah. fantastic. Brush yeah. So when pajamas. Sasha gets Fail into the, the hot tub, he's the dude responsible for that little bit of scuzz that floats in the middle because uh -huh. it comes out of his belly button. There's oh, some fluff from his pajamas. Yeah. It's terrible. I'm so sorry. So By the way, I just like to use the so correct English pronunciation. Yeah. It's jacuzzi. Jacuzzi. Okay, that's just okay. okay. So when Sasha gets into jacuzzi, he's um, there's that little bit in the middle where all the bubbles are, and then there's this sort of dead spot. And we have that in our ocean. So you have all the currents that converge in our ocean. Mm -hmm. And there's an area called the doldrums, which are often very windless and flat, and there is not a lot of motion. And in that area is a convergence. And that convergence is where a lot of our trash goes. A lot of our trash sinks in the ocean, and it does something more, you know, there's a sort of a, a more noxious side to the story, which is the, um, the photo degradation, right, of plastic. So mm -hmm. as the plastics get into the ocean, um, the, the plastic is in fact hydrophobic, so it repels water, um, and, um, and, and, but it attracts the toxins for, that run off from industry. So you think about all the pesticides, all the herbicides, the dioxins from paper production, the fire retardants, all those chemicals that get into our water system are attracted to those bits of plastic initially. So you have a big bowl of spaghetti at night from your takeaway. When you finish, you look around the rim, you know, you put it into your microwave, there's a, there's a rim of oil mm -hmm. usually stuck inside. So all those oils and all those, those, those toxins that are going into our ocean are attracted to those bits of plastic. They then photodegrade, which means they break down into molecular sized pieces. Those pieces live in the life layer of our ocean, which is where light can penetrate our ocean. They're then ingested by the, the, the smaller things in our ocean, we call like the salps and the arthropods, the things that are basically filter feeders. Filter feeders are like vacuums, so they, 
suck everything up. Mm-hmm. Now we've got these molecular-sized pieces. You know, they call them the very. They call them mermaids' teardrops, which I always think was kind of like an interesting. Uh, uh, I thought that's also coincidentally the title of a Jethro Tull album. Yeah, I think it is as well. Um, and so they basically, um, Jethro Tull lives in the life layer of our ocean. That's where he's gone. And it's he's not- hiding out there where there is light. He is <laughs> yeah. constantly hanging in that layer of the ocean. Um, but then it gets into that food system. Uh, into our food system and then the things that we actually revere on our table the things that you know if some people are eating fish um, you know and especially the fatty tuners that you know are sold for more money they're the ones that are actually attracting more toxins right that fatty um, tissue stores that fatty tissue is same thing it's storing highly concentrated highly concentrated yeah, right. chemicals and, and then we're ingesting that um, and I often get people say well I don't eat fish and I go do you eat meat and they say yeah so one of the things that a lot of people don't know is that in in, in agriculture in in in, in um in the beef industry, we're feeding cattle on fish meal. So we're grinding up fish and feeding it to cattle. And that fish is also mm-hmm. then transferred. Those toxins are transferred into meat as well. Right, it gets even more um, concentrated. It does. Though. So so it's a, it's basically what I'm saying. It's a, con- it's a, it's a fucking clusterfuck of information, right. right? That overwhelms people. The oceans are massive. The problem is massive. There's a detachment. How do you make it interesting? How do you make it, you know, some jeopardy? And actually... You know, it was interesting because it was a filmmaker and a producer, a guy called Jeff Skoll, who I went mm-hmm. to see back in 2006. He'd just finished Inconvenient Truth mm-hmm. and I went to see him. And, and Sasha, would you'd appreciate this. I went in and I said, look, I'm going to take a bunch of artists on a boat to this massive plastic gyre, which is twice the size of Texas. And we're going to take some trash from the ocean and we're going to then take it back and we're going to build these sculptures. And it's going to be called from, you know, um, sea to show. And we're going to do like a, a whole art show with all this trash. And he went... That's really great, but as a filmmaker, I need to know where the final act is, where's the drama, where's the reveal. If it's twice the size of Texas, it's not like you're not going to find it. And there doesn't seem to be any kind of like sense of jeopardy. Where, where could the jeopardy come in? Mm-hmm. You know? And so I left that on that voyage. I left that, that, um, that meeting, and I was flying back to the UK, and I was looking out the window. Um, and I remember thinking, what is one of the most sort of iconic ocean adventures of all time? was the Contiki, right? Which won best documentary in 1946, I think it was 51 actually, but it was 1946 that the exhibition happened. Uh, You know, this great ocean voyage. And it was all the drama and jeopardy, right? Was there because it was like these guys were going out on this crazy adventure on this raft. And so it started out with like Contiki, plastic is the problem, plastiki. So I started with a name. And I think it's something interesting about that. That was was the, the name had a resonance because of its history, right? Because of the Contiki. As soon as you said Plastiki, you went, oh yeah, I remember the story. So you already had a leg up from a great story, right? right. It's evocative of yeah, you a- know, one of the great adventures of all time. And so that was where it started. It became, you know, a story of design, a story of, um, you know, oceans and sailing and, and, and innovation. And I tried to bring together, back to Buckminster Fuller, you know, he would always work across multiple disciplines. And I think that's where it becomes really interesting. I mean, people often say to me, why do you live in L.A.? And I, I, I you know, apart from being close to the ocean and, 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 you know, falling in love with someone who lived here, the other thing that fascinates me about L.A. is it's the home of stories right and stories is what we need and where we come from we you know we identify with stories the first thing you do as a parent to your children is read them stories and here we are sitting in the nexus of stories think about 
all the films that we watch around the world. They come from this tiny little yeah. eight mile radius block out of this industry, which is Hollywood. And we're at a point where I feel there are great storytellers and because the whole industry, and you could probably talk to this in a second better than me, the industry is failing great storytellers. They're not making films. They're scared to make great films because of the, the marketing model in the film industry. And so the byproduct is we've got all these incredible talent sitting around going, what can I do? Where can I lend my, my, my writing or my storytelling skills? And that's what excites me is being close to those storytellers, which is why I guess Sash and myself, apart from him being married to my sister, you know, started talking about what projects we could collaborate and on. And we have a, we actually have a few, seriously, we have yeah. a few ideas, we have some really good things, but you were talking sort of very eloquently earlier about, you know, what we nourish ourselves with is, is critical. It's crucial to our state of mind, our spirit. I think the same is true as we need to nourish ourselves with stories, you know, and for me, I think that what you're talking about is a shift away from things which are actually about the human spirit or that are about experience and, and enriching people's lives to ultimately what corporate products you know and I think that there were complaints I remember when I first arrived in, in LA a few years ago there would be people doing like I'm doing a big coke commercial you know and 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 the directors would be like frustrated because they weren't able to artistically express themselves and they said you know the coca-cola guys are behind my shoulder and they like I have to move the can slightly to the left and, you know these large event movies have essentially become, become that. That. they I have mean, become they're, corporate they're, events they're yeah. roller coaster rides That's they're right. a there's you know, not they're, they're not they're not driven by an, an inherently like in the old days it was like it's a great idea go do it you know there were people who though you know as tough as they might have been they had the courage of their convictions they were about doing big ideas you know now it's much more my committee so it's it's a kind of a frustrating process I mean I'm involved with some of those big movies and I come in and out of them at different stages as as you know and it, it's it's something where you just show up and you're doing like a commercial job mm. you know but. It's a sort of wonderful, though, that at the same time, incredible organizations like Pixar, you know, where, where people really deal with story in such an organic and methodical and deep and textured way, where they sit around literally for years and as a group try and come up with something that's going to have a value, mm -hmm. not just beyond this, the weekend it comes out, but for years afterwards. And I think, to me, that's where the inspiration lies a lot in, in groups of people who are thinking in those ways, which is about what is the value and point of what we're putting into the world if you're just doing it to make money and to sell popcorn tickets that's fine and there are you know that's absolutely listen i go to those movies and i love them too but at the same time it's like we have a limited time on the earth <laughs> and it's like you there's only think, so many movies you can watch yeah it's like so what do you, you like read, at a certain stories, point yeah. I, I always think of this thing which really helps me a lot like i always think like when i'm going to be at some point you know hopefully in not too long you know but in some years i'll be on my deathbed i'll be thinking about my life and i'll be thinking about what are the things that i did that i'm really proud of you know there'll be certain things I had to do because I needed a job or I, whatever it was but what are those things because I want to have at least one or two things or maybe mm -hmm. more who knows you know things where I feel you know I really did something and it was it was personally meaningful to me and it connected with other people and it's like I, I think in those terms now I, I'm at a certain point where I'm not 21 anymore you know I have a limited amount of time at which I'm going to be able to do my thing and so I, I'm sort of trying to make I think choices that relate to that in some way, that have some value, some meaning. Let, let's bring people together, you know, in the same way that you do with your adventures, you know. The intention, whether you succeed or not, but the intention is to connect people and to put something in the world that means something, you know. And so uh, that's the criteria by which I think most decisions certainly I make right now. And we are in a world where people are not thinking that way. They aren't thinking about 
you know, a lot of people, the thing that I find is a lot of people truly are hopeless. They don't believe they can change things. You know, they really don't. Because I mean, that I was, was one of the points I wanted to get into with David, especially with respect to the environmental movement, because people just feel disenfranchised. Mm-hmm. You know, what can I do? Aside from making sure that the glass bottle goes in the in the, the recycle bin. But I mean, or just, in, in, just so. in the case, Rich, of you yourself, right? And I've known you for, you know, for 18 years mm-hmm. or whatever it is. I thought it was 15, but God, it feels like know. 28. No, but I remember, dude, I remember when you were a chubby lawyer. And I remember that time, you know. No, but this, I remember this is the truth. <laughs> no, but you were, you were a chubby lawyer. lawyer. You were not happy. I remember you had this moment, you know, and I think you talked about it in your book where you you sort of walked up or down, so you walked up some stairs and you just couldn't make it to the top of the stairs without being mm-hmm. totally out of breath. And somehow this little seed of kind of something crystallized in that moment. And you decide, you know what? I'm going to change my bloody life. I'm actually going to do it. And here we are, whatever, 10 years later. And you've gone from like, a chubby lawyer like 10,000 other guys into a guy who's like totally reinvented your life mm-hmm. and has sustained that change. And and that is massively inspirational to me. So, But what I'm saying is I think people don't believe they can do that. And it's so important for people to get the message that actually don't kind of fall into the, you know, sort of the, a bad habit of believing you can't actually transcend issues that you might have mm-hmm. because you absolutely can and the way you and do you that is your... with support in, in in people like for example yeah. like you know the reason david and i get on actually quite well is we you know we we screw around with each other all the time and we're making jokes but the reality is we basically support each other's b- sort of essential philosophy mm. you know and and we're on the so it was fantastic you know it's very rare you know i didn't grow up with you know brothers and sisters you know and it was such a wonderful thing as the additional bonus of, of meeting my wife was you know meeting her two incredible brothers and having like that that sense of you know a group of people <laughs> like i'm not totally on my own you know mm-hmm. and that's a great and i think it's important to find community to find support to find people of your sort of like mind you know because i can't do this shit on my own right you know i need to be inspired by and for people you know and how does that inform your storytelling i mean you know i just i just there's a like i said there's sort of a purpose to it now Mm -hmm. i hope well we're like i think we're almost exactly the same age i think our birthdays are a couple days apart right and as we're we're inching up on early 70s we're inching up on 50 i'm just just thinking about chubby lawyer yeah oh yeah he was a chubby lawyer man that should be that should be your website chubby lawyer there are literally i don't know however many tens or hundreds of thousands people listening to this podcast i wish they could have known rich roll because the guy he's become is like fucking transcendent man like he literally was an unhappy sort of really shut down you were super shy you didn't say how you felt you know and you were like this fat self-hating lawyer mm-hmm. and to see what you've done with your life and this message that you spread man it's for sure but i should also say that you've been you know you've been there for me throughout the entire journey and you've always been you know a friend on the other end of the phone or you know available when i needed you and you've helped me a lot over those years so you are a very integral you know person in this process for me so you you know i thank you for that you know and that's Um, what it is like in life like you just how many great friends do you have i mean honestly you're lucky if you have two or three mm -hmm. or four you know it's like a small group of people that you know there's not that many people who've known me since i was like a kid to now but those people they're all in jail they're all in jail but (laughs) not only they criminal but they're super important those people you know and i and i've been you know i've seen you go through so much man i have to say it is amazing and one of the i just have to say one slight family story one of the reasons i wanted to do this podcast today was because i got a call from my flipping cousin 
Michelle Kasoy, Michelle and Andrew Bernstein, in fact, but Michelle Kasoy, she calls me up. She goes, do you know Rich Roll? I'm like, uh, yeah, I've known him like all the time I've been in LA. She goes, I can't believe it. How do you know Rich Roll? I'm like, suddenly like my buddy is like a star to my cousin. I'm like, I'm getting on that goddamn passport <laughs> on that podcast. But, so okay. Michelle, this one's for you, baby. <laughs> <laughs> The hilarious footnote to all of that, though, is... Otherwise, I wouldn't be here. I know, but listen to this. So I've been doing this podcast for like, I don't know, three and a half years, coming up on four years. And I think when I was about maybe six or seven months into it, and I was still like, you know, finding my way and trying to figure out how to do this, I came to Sasha, like the paperback version of my book was coming out, and I had this idea. I was like, I I, want to have somebody interview me instead of me interviewing all these people. Like, who can interview me? Who knows me well enough to ask me insightful questions and, and also make it entertaining and funny? I was like, Sasha. I'm gonna have Sasha do this. So I call you up and I'm like, will you do this? And you're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I go to your house, we set it all up and you had no idea what was going on. You didn't take any of it seriously. And it just went off the rails <laughs> on like minute five. And I just pulled the plug out. This is this is not working. I cannot use this. This is like, I asked you as a favor to do this. You've let me down. <laughs> And I was like, you're forever barred from this podcast adventure. So it's just hilarious to me. There is redemption. There's redemption. You guys should hug it out. I know. It's funny. But But I want to get back. But put your trousers on first. Yeah. I want to get. I want to. I want to follow the the through line narrative of the plastiki. But but since we're talking about you right now, Sasha, maybe you can just sort of tell us a little bit about how you, you know, have made your way into becoming. I mean, you know, you're an A-list screenwriter filmmaker here in hollywood certainly, you, you, certainly you in my in, own mind in your own mind yeah. and uh yeah no i've made a you living know, you, at you, it, yeah. yeah you 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 exist in kind of rare air here no i so mean you know listen this, man I'm what, i arrived in la I didn't, I didn't really know happen. anyone i got lucky i got accepted to ucla film school and uh you know i've been working ever since and it's been you know i mean cr- tremendously you started as a journalist yeah i started as a journalist writing for different sort of newspapers and magazines in england and this wonderful guy called Sean McCauley, who's absolutely brilliant screenwriter. He just right. did the movie Eddie the Eagle, which we all love. I was Super so happy for him with yeah. that movie. I mean, he waited for 25 years and finally got it made. And it was made. great. And, and so it. Sean gave me my first job in journalism, mm-hmm. and we ended up kind of coming to LA to sort of work together. And we did for quite a few years, actually. And, you know, so, so the journalism led into sort of the first script that I ever wrote, which, you know, I'm now actually going to finally make. And uh, you know, it's, can you say what that is? Because yeah, I'm doing I'm doing this uh, this script called My Dinner with Hervé. It's with Peter Dinklage and Jack O'Connell. It's a pretty extraordinary film. It's about a true life experience when I interviewed Hervé Villachez, who most people won't know, but he was the French little person on a show called Fantasy Island, which was about number one TV show in the yes, world the plane, from '78 to '82. So. I had this surreal experience where I was sent to interview this guy as a sort of joke, and it ended up changing my life, in fact, because the guy was the most charming, intelligent, brilliant, crazy, lunatic uh, that I'd ever met, and he was so incredibly human. And what happened was that after I interviewed him, which was meant to be a sort of where-are-they-now sort of puff piece with a few funny photos, five days after I interviewed him, uh, I went back to London, and his girlfriend called to tell me that he'd committed suicide, and I realized that I had that 
I was basically his last will and testament. Mm-hmm. He knew he was going to kill himself, and he just wanted to tell some random English guy his story. And so, but it, you made that you were able to make this kind of connection with him. Where well, I mean, you, what you was kind interesting, of knew as it was happening. Right? I sort of knew. Started, I mean, something was going on. I mean, it was like this guy was three foot ten. He was drinking. You know, I had just had a, a big issues with drink and drugs myself, and had got through it. Um, and you know, I'd had a moment with that, and so I kind of it was really interesting. And he was this crazy almost monstrous kind of figure and it you know i sort of felt how he looked you know at that moment and i was really wrestling with everything and it was just i just had this sort of visceral connection with him it's very odd as a journalist you know people tell their whole life story in the space of you know hours and often you know they'll get emotional because how often do you talk about everything from the beginning to the mm-hmm. end which he did with me and he got very emotional now a good journalist will will you know not abuse that a bad journalist will then you know, take advantage of someone's emotional vulnerability and then come up with a horrible story, you know, but, you know, they, they wanted me to do a cynical kind of, he's a joke kind of a piece, isn't he funny? And I was so taken with who he was as a human. I just thought, my God, man, look, this guy, I feel just like this guy, like, who am I to judge? You know, and I remember walking back into the newspaper in England and just feeling like I've just had my mind blown because what I thought was going to be a joke has sort of transformed into this. I actually made friends with him mm-hmm. and I thought, my God, you know, I, 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 and my job as a journalist is to judge, to, to be cynical, to evaluate, to contrast, to judge, you know, all that stuff, all that stuff. And yet with him, I just felt sort of almost strangely honored that he told me this story and the newspaper just wanted to turn it into you know, mm-hmm. a trite piece of kind of Sunday morning journalism, you know. So I wrote the real story and the editor of the magazine at the time said, you know, you know, that's very nice, but, you know, six million people are going to choke on their croissant. You know, this is too much. <laughs> you know, soften it and make it into a bit more of a joke. And I just really resented the fact that that within the, this cynical world that I was sort of found myself in of journalism, that there was really not any room for humanity. Like I used to get sent on interviews and the editor would say, this is what we think of this person, write this, before I'd even met them. You know, so this this idea of judgment and, and cynicism was something I think was part of my sort of evolution is I realized, you know, it's like people can seem incredibly different on the surface. You know, it's a theme I touched on, for example, in a documentary I made called Anvil, The Story of Anvil, where you look at these two kind of middle-aged kind of headbangers from Toronto walking down the streets, you know, smoking joints with their bum bags. And you go, my God, they're just, you know, some people would say, God, what sad, crazy, deluded fools, you know. And so the whole point of the film I made about them was to show that when you strip away the layers, you know, that these guys are incredible human beings. I mean, you may, may hate their music, you may think they're silly, but you know what, they're doing what they believe in for the right reasons and they've given their lives to it. Mm -hmm. They've given their lives to their passion for pure, honest reasons. And so I guess the point of the Hervé thing and the Anvil thing was really to say, before you judge, before you all rush to judge, take a minute and just listen and and just really find out who people really are versus who they seem to be or who who they appear to be. Mm -hmm. And so I think that, you know, that, that Hervé experience, when I met him and when he killed himself, I felt, you know, this incredible... You know, he said to me, it was so weird. I remember being in the, the hotel lobby where I saw him at the Universal Sheraton. And um, we came down in the elevator together. And I knew something was going on. I had this sense in my instinct. I mean, he was very ill. I mean, he was taking medication. He, he sort of smelled of medication. And his eyes were glassy, you know. And I kind of knew something was happening. I couldn't say what it was. And he said to me, you know, promise them that you'll tell my story. You know, and I remember saying I would. You know, and that was 23 years ago. 
Mm. You know, and I just, it was just a very weird thing to have, to, to be asked, you know, to, to, to tell someone's story when you didn't really ask and to be to asked. And to honor that, to honor <laughs> and, that. And here we are. To have, witness. you know, the, the reservoir of empathy required to, you know, shepherd that story and fertilize it over all these years. I mean, you ended up writing a short script, right? Yeah, I wrote school, My Dinner with Herve. And yeah. that was really kind of what grabbed the attention of Hollywood and, and yeah. kick-started your career Through very, I was incredibly fortunate to have met probably, I'd say probably one of the greatest living screenwriters, Steve Zalian, who mm. was unbelievably generous with me and read this short of mine and said, um, you know, you're a writer and thus began a journey and here we are sort of 23 years ago. And, and he, he was a great mentor for you, right? For many, many years. He just, of, and he just did The Night Of, right? Yes, he just did this the, the most incredible, incredible show on TV, hands down, show. called The Night Of. I mean, I was just blown away with it. I mean, he's extraordinary. You know, so as a human, as, as an artist as well, and it was just, you know, I mean, without him, I wouldn't be here. I have to mm -hmm. say that <laughs> without him, I, I wouldn't have anything. Right. And I, I think he knows that. I know that. I, I just feel I've been incredibly fortunate at certain moments to have been blessed with just the helping hand shows up mm -hmm. and the kindness, you know, and not just Steve, but also his family, you know, when I really didn't know anyone in L.A. And um, so I, I, I'm just sort of immensely grateful to Steve and also to Sean McCauley, actually, who has you know, was for many, many years, you know, one of my close friends. And, and, and absolutely, you know, I'm so, it's so amazing to see what's happening for him now. And, yeah. to, you know, to it's see great. What, yeah. It's long overdue for him. Long yeah, overdue, I know. Yeah. There's a great uh, story that you once told me that I'll never forget. I remember it vividly. And it was um, shortly after production began on the terminal. <laughs> And yeah. you got very emotional telling this story and you kind of recounted what you just said and said, you know, I've, I've struggled and I've, I've, you know, I've had my ups and I've had my downs and I've, you know, continued to persevere and show up for the page day after day through thick and thin and not knowing if anything would ever happen. And, you know, yesterday I flew on a private jet and went to some set, like, where was it? Out in Palm Springs in or Palm like Dale, out in the yeah. desert. And they had built an entire basically airport terminal as a set based on your script mm. to be directed by Steven Spielberg. Yeah. That and was... the arc of that journey, I remember you being very emotional because it was so, the, the, that arc is so spectacular. I mean, it was just a very, it was a very, you know, I, uh, you know, I've been really lucky, man. I mean, look, I, like I said, you know, I've been very fortunate. I've, I just, you know, got, had some lucky breaks, and 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 Steve Zalian was the reason for that. Really, he opened the door and introduced me to Steven Spielberg, and um, you know that was an incredible experience. Yeah, to sort of be sitting in a room for two years and actually to have not been able to deliver a script, to have been totally blocked, and to have been fired off it, and then been saved basically by Steve, and then ultimately for Tom Hanks and Steven Spielberg to make the film. You know, it was just such a sort of it was really miraculous. And, and so, I mean, there are certain things in, in one's life, whether it's mine or other people's, where you just sort of see the, the unseen hand of, of some force, you know, some positive force that, you know, if you, uh, you, you know, if you, if you keep going, if you persevere, if you, if you do, if you're doing things for the right reasons, somehow, somewhere, something good will happen. You know, if you, like, whatever, like when with Anvil, you know, like I made this crazy documentary that no one wanted to finance about two completely unknown heavy metal guys from Toronto. Like, no one was going to finance that movie. And I decided, you know what, fuck it. I'm just going to, like, pay for it. And I spent two years making this loony new movie and everyone thought it, I was completely crazy. And, uh, you know, it's like if you're coming from the heart, 
you know, you can't fail. Doesn't matter what you do. And I'd had this opportunity after that success with Spielberg to kind of be part of the system, you know, and my agents at the time were like, go and write this, you know, Adam Sandler and Jim Carrey and all these things. And I just was like, I, you know, actually I didn't get into this to just kind of make money and be part of a corporate event. I did it because I want to fucking make some films that I can say, you know, watch this movie. This is what I'm proud of. You know, mm-hmm. this this means something to me. This is what I'm about. Mm-hmm. You know, this is what I care about. You know, you may not care about it, but I do. Mm-hmm. And 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 I hope that you get something from it. You know, so listen man, I I I, t- I totally recognize that I've been, you know, struck with you know, good fortune lightning on so many occasions. But you've you've also demonstrated a tremendous amount of courage and faith because, you know, a lot of these gambles that you've taken, you know, very easily could have not panned out. I mean, I remember being at your house, you were having a barbecue when Lips from Anvil like first came to your house. That's right. And I was like, who is this guy? And well, you're like, oh, he's in this band. Like Anvil, I, yeah. I had, you know, followed them around when I was a kid and I was friends with him and I felt like reconnecting with him and I and I wanted to see him. So he's visiting for the weekend. And I was like, this strange dude with the fanny pack and the, you know, the heavy metal shirt and long hair and shorts. Well, that was, and a, was, like, what was what guy? was amazing was I had not you seen know? him in 20 years and I got I emailed him and and he 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 just I flew him out to LA for for that summer and I had mm-hmm. that house so that you came to and you know what was amazing was he walked in and he was wearing the same fucking scorpions t-shirt that he'd been wearing in 1989 or whatever it was <laughs> and I was like he hasn't changed he looks yeah, the yeah. same and what was amazing he was delivering ki- sort of a kindergarten school lunches to kindergartens at that time right but here he was, 50 years old, still believing that his band was going to make mm-hmm. it. And I started the weekend by thinking, this poor, poor guy. I mean, he's so tragic, like, he's crazy. But by the end of the weekend, because he was so fucking positive about it, and because he was so committed, I was like, he's going to fucking make it. Like I, like, and I was like, there's a film here, you know. So it all came from his spirit, you know, his mm-hmm. attitude. Because that was all that drove me to make that film was this guy refused to fucking give up. And I was like, okay, you're crazy. But you know what? There's something inspiring about that. Incredibly inspiring, you know? And that spark was lit to make the movie that weekend, essentially. And, That's right. and, and you, you know, what what kind of, you know, evolved from that was several years of basically following these guys around. And, <laughs> you know, I was kind of with you in lockstep, you know, cheering you on, but thinking, this is insane. Like, is there ever going to be a movie? Like, what is the movie? You're just going to follow these dudes around Toronto and like Eastern Europe exactly. and, and they play Europe. bars yeah. Yeah. meanwhile you're paying for the whole thing I'm like you know what's the denouement I mean like, how are you so gonna, many crazy moments gonna, like I remember you know, when we were in Romania and they just done another gig where they were paid in goulash you know after right. being stiffed on their fee and we followed lips Anvil had a camper van and we drove through this black forest in the middle of the night in somewhere in Romania I think we were even in fucking Transylvania and we the film crew were following Anvil which is basically a very bad idea so anyway lips stops the car he comes out to our camper van he goes we're camping here this is great we're camping here. anyway so we go to sleep in our vans and like I get not Locked on the window by Rob Reiner at like six in the morning. Lights coming through. I've had two hours sleep. Not Rob Reiner, the the not actor, not Spinal Tap director, the drummer, yeah, the of, Anvil, drummer Rob of Anvil, Rob Reiner, yes. and I think Double B. Let's uh-huh. you know, it's amazing that the, the the damage a single misplaced consonant can wreak. And uh, anyway, so I get the banging on the window, and. Uh, Rob says, look, man, look, man, we nearly, we fuck it. Anyway, so it turns out that Lips had stopped the convoy of camper vans literally five feet from a 300-foot drop into a ravine in the Romanian flipping forest. Like, we nearly died. And I'm like, 
I nearly died because of Anvil. Like, we could so easily have driven off the fucking... Making this stupid movie. Making this stupid yeah. fucking movie. I'm yeah, going like, to die for I these... I mean, you must have had plenty of moments of thinking, what am I doing? The many. Out of my mind. I could be writing some huge movie right now and getting paid tons <laughs> of money. I remember the first night that we shot, I have this amazing cameraman, Chris Seuss. And I said, look, we're going to meet Anvil. I persuaded him to do it, right? He flew. We flew to Munich, I think, where we started shooting. Or Prague. And anyway, so... We shoot the first night, and Chris says, look, dude, i got to talk to you. And I'm like, okay, are you okay? I, I was like, I thought it was really bad news. Like, you know, he had to go home. His, you know, his mother had cancer. It's like, dude, I have to talk to you, and I have to talk to you in private. I was like, okay, Chris. So we go up. He locks the room of my hotel room, and he turns to me completely seriously, and he says, dude, I need to know, are they actors? I'm not going to tell the rest of the crew, but I need to know, uh-huh. are they fucking actors? Amazing. Like my own crew. You would just staged this. No, that, that it was like this meta kind of Michelle Gondry kind uh-huh. of thing where I was like playing a trick <laughs> on my own crew. Dude, I'm like, they're real. He says, I don't believe they're real. I said, dude, go online. Look up fucking Anvil, dude. They've been around for 30 years. Look up the records. How many albums have they put 13 out? 13 records. Uh-huh. You know, Forged in Fire, you know, Metal on Metal, Hard and Heavy. Metal but, on Metal. You know, metal on Metal. I mean, you couldn't make it up. Right. I mean, but dude, by the way, the new Anvil album is called Anvil Is anvil and the album cover is painted by rob is an anvil staring at itself in a mirror that's the fucking album co- like i couldn't make that shit up amazing i mean oh my God. anvil is anvil look it up if you don't believe me so i mean what i'm saying is it was like my own crew did not believe that right. it was real so i think that's when i knew okay i think i have something because if my own crew <laughs> is thinking i'm staging it then we're all right but we're at on. the same time how are you going to craft some kind of narrative out of this well i spent two right? years trying to figure yeah, that out eventually we like, did i mean what was amazing was it was like a real you know it was a really tough time as uh, my agent rowena will tell you you know, we went to Sundance, everyone loved it, but it was a really tough time in the market. And, you know, we had no offers that were really any good. And I, and I was like, take this DVD deal, get your money back and just move on and go and write big movies for bad comedians. And I was like, you know what, I'm not going to do it. I'm fucking releasing it on my own. And everyone was like, you're even more crazy. And it turned out, you know, mm-hmm. to be the greatest thing I ever did. It's like when you have those moments of real doubt and you're really being tested, my experience is, you know, go for it have right. even more courage like that's that's the wall you're being asked to climb you're being asked how much do you really want it and so commit more and that's what i did and i took a, at that time a second mortgage out on my house and i released it and it turned into the thing that totally changed my yeah. life in many thing. ways and changed theirs i mean that probably one of the that we had so many amazing moments that's the most amazing thing what was amazing was standing on the stage at giant stadium mm-hmm. with 50,000 people screaming for anvil because ACDC had seen the movie. They wanted Anvil to open for them. And I'm standing on the stage with lips, man. And they're going, Anvil, Anvil, Anvil. And he's in tears, man. And he goes, we did it, man. We fucking did it. We made this little movie. And now fucking giant stadium. Right. I mean, it was just like, it was transcendental. So for people that are listening that have not yet seen the movie, everybody's not going that good, to after way. that. It's but just that create a little context. Kind of just shit. give like like a thumbnail context, though, for who these guys <laughs> well, are. Well, you know, so it's like some people gather, can like, make how it long enough so I can take a pee is. and come yeah. back. <laughs> David, go. Some so, people we're going to get back to Plastiki. No, we're, this we're, is we're bizarre. We're like filmmaker, environmentalist. Like, how do I balance this in this conversation? I don't think I can keep it going for as long as a number two. Sasha King, I could leave and you can just go. Okay, anyway, so it's basically for those who have 
haven't seen it, Anvil, the story of Anvil, you can get it on Amazon or iTunes or whatever. It's, uh, it's you know, it's a movie, it was compared to the real Spinal Tap. A lot of people didn't think it was real. Um, you know, the drummer is called Rob Reiner, so to the director of Spinal Tap, as we mentioned. So it it's a very, it's about two guys with a dr who, age 14, decided that they were going to, in Toronto, Canada, decided they were going to rock together forever. And here they are in the 50s, as we find, in, in their 50s, as we find them, and they're still fucking doing it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and it hasn't happened, but many bands like uh, Metallica and Anthrax, who are influenced by them, have obviously gone on to huge success. And here are these guys still doing it, not bitter. Just playing local bars. Just playing local bars. And, and things and like still that. And working, you know, basically blue-collar jobs. Blue-collar jobs, yeah. And I think that... Um, my two favorite films when I was was you know in England in the in when I was growing up were Spinal Tap. I saw it when it came out in 1984, The Swiss Cottage Odeon, and um, and With Nail and I, you know, which really inspired me. And I think at a certain point, I had those two movies in my mind when I made Anvil. It's really a story of, you know, a, a crazy rock band, but it's also a story of a friendship, you know, mm -hmm. and how we kind of need each other. You know, <laughs> one person is incomplete without it's the other. It's a story of perseverance, though, yeah. and it's a story about what it means to to hold on to a dream so strongly that you're willing to do anything to make it happen. And, and also when there's no choice. Up. It's also when there's no choice. It's like you're you're in. You've made that decision. You can't give up. And and so there's something, you know, deluded about keeping going, but there's also something incredibly inspirational about it because you're staying true to what you believe in. You know, and for for me, you know, I I lived that the message of the movie you know it was very hard to get it out into the world there was a lot of resistance even the band themselves when i was shooting were like what the fuck are we doing you know right and uh you know it was just a lot of things to keep together but i just i just really had this spiritual kind of feeling like that this was going to be a good thing and that this was going to inspire and, and and ultimately as it turned out with all the artists i mean you know, not just heavy metal, but like everyone from kind of Dave Grohl to Chris Martin to Jay-Z to, mm -hmm. you know, pretty much every musician in the world, you know, has, has you they've know, all championed. They've all championed the movie. Championed it. And then to get back to the original point, uh, the, the beautiful kind of result of this being that you were able to, you know, put them in a position by virtue of the film that they then could step up and actualize this dream that they've had. Their and they life. gave up their and jobs and now they tour the world and, and do tour, incredible well. Play huge shows. Well. <laughs> and now we're doing, yeah. e as, as I'm sure I... <laughs> so, yeah, can we say what we were doing before the podcast? I think you should. Yeah, so right before the podcast <laughs> started, Sasha showed us the trailer for Anvil 2. Oh, we'll get full title, Anvil 2, Quest for World Peace. All right, so. Of course. Of course. Go big or go home. What else would right? it be called? <laughs> yeah. It's, yeah, I mean, it's like I couldn't, I never wanted to make a sequel to it. And then the story as it presented itself is so incredible. I couldn't not at the end of the day, because as people may or may not know from the first film, Rob Reiner, the drummer, his grandfather actually passed away at Auschwitz and his father as a 15 year old escaped. And so the second movie is about Judaism and identity. And again, I don't think anyone's expecting mm -hmm. it. But uh, as you just saw from the trailer, you know, it's, uh, it's a whole new and very different story. So we're putting it together now. We still have a lot of work to do. But yeah, people are. Yeah, we're a lot of work to do. World peace. A lot of, dude, we've got to say, well, peace. Well, you, yeah, you have to actually achieve that, right? <laughs> In the third act. No, no, no. Anvil's all about giving <laughs> your all drama. and trying. Yeah. If you fail miserably, if you've given everything, you've won. It's it's not about yeah. So it's been super fun to be with them again and shooting mm -hmm. and and we took you know Anvil to Auschwitz and filmed that and that was you know it's just, right. It's what Anvil is. Like, it's I mean, like, how could you top going to Stonehenge? 
Well, we, we just did. As it's, as it's, yeah, it's like there's no point in making a sequel to a movie like that unless you feel like you have something else to say that right. is it's a tall know. order to top what yeah. you've already I, done, I don't so. think I'll, we'll top it but I think we'll be in the same general area I mean what did you think of that I thought it was amazing it's, I mean <laughs> it's you know it's just great to see the bum bag back the you bag. Know, that's what it should be called <laughs> the bum bag is back the bum bag the is quest back. for and world peace quest for world peace bum bag returns yes. bum bag returns and I could personally attest to the fact that those guys are who they are whether there's a camera on them or not you know I've been around them enough to know that they are through and through true blue 100% of the time the guys that you see in the movie that's exactly right I remember when I first was dating my wife and I and I and I and I brought Anvil along to one of our first dates <laughs> And they were in the back of this car and my wife was in the front. And she was experiencing what you're describing, which is that exactly the same as in right. the movie. And after about 15 minutes, she leaned across to me and smiled politely and said, please make it stop. Because <laughs> it was like being an, un- an unedited right. version of the movie. No, but she loves them too. I mean, those guys, man, they played our wedding. Yeah. How good was that? And they wore a bum bag. Uh, of course. And he put cake in the bum bag. They did. Yeah, she put this, he t- dude, Rob put a piece of cake for later into his little... Into his yeah, fanny pack. Yeah, into his fanny, fanny pack. pack. Yeah. You know, it's important to keep wedding cake in a that fanny That is unbelievable. It's probably still there, actually. Yeah, it's probably there. He's going to whip it out in Anvil too. <laughs> anyway, so that's it. So that's the whole Anvil story. Uh-huh. But yeah. Well, I'm looking forward to it. And it's it was... I remember and, you got to, and I got to see you play drums on stage with Scott Ian. Oh, yeah. Where was that? I think it was at Sundance. At Sundance. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah, We did. We did. And Slash. And Slash. Oh, that's right. And Slash Slash from Guns N' Roses came out and we all jammed. He had a show with with his band at the time, pre pre the reformation of Guns N' Roses. And he stayed an extra day in in Sundance because he wanted to jam with Anvil. And it was Scott Ian from Anthrax. Yeah. And we all played Ted Nugent's Cat Scratch Fever. (laughs) People went went crazy. It was so fun. But I remember meeting you. When you were launching Plastiki, Dave, we... I remember you had just seen it, right? We were up in South Salita. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. I just just, just seen it. I remember thinking... All right, my so poor this, sister. My sister is dating this lunatic, <laughs> like, and oh, I'm trying to like balls. make a. But you're trying to make a boat out of plastic bottles. So like, who is more insane? <laughs> yeah, that's a good, good question. <laughs> so let's get back to that then. Um, I think Sasha's more insane for sure. Yeah, I think that's. that's I think that's right. the. I think that's the, that 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 gave me. I think that was on, what pushed done, me over the yeah, edge. But you've look, done some insane shit, dude. Come on. How about right. like 110 days in Antarctica? I mean, who would do that? Yeah, I, I think we should. That should be the Anvil on Ice. That should be. <laughs> That's it. Anvil yeah. three. Anvil, Anvil on Ice. Anvil on Ice. There we go. Yeah, be so good. I just interviewed this guy, uh, Colin O'Brady, who just broke the world record for the Explorers Grand Slam. He did it all in like under six months. <coughs> young he kid. Did, he did. Yeah, he's pretty young. He's a professional triathlete. Yeah, I met him. You did, Actually, oh, you I met bump, him. I bumped into him. Oh, sorry. cool. <clears throat> joking here on Sasha's craziness it's just oozing out of him uh-huh. I met him actually in um, I was up in Svalbard at the beginning of the year which is up in the high Arctic and uh-huh. he was just trying to do his North Pole last degree oh wow so he's, he was an interesting dude yeah yeah um, yeah young guy um, and I remember meeting him and he was kind of on the tender hooks because of the delays right. he was closing his weather window right, to, right, right. to reach Everest to climb Everest um, so he did it he got it done good boy yeah. he got it done and then um and then I think after Everest, I think he still had to do, I'm trying to remember the order of it, but I think he still had, was it Kilimanjaro after that? He had one more Mount peak yeah, that, he had, that he had to get up. Um, I don't remember which one, but he also broke, like, so he did the seven summits and both poles, 
but he also like broke the record for the fastest person to do the seven summits within that but he mm. had to rush at the last minute like there's all these crazy stories of course yeah, like of course. how can there not be right yeah. but super cool kid yeah cool kid and i think again inspiring you know i mean it's it's definitely i i i'd sort of take my hat off to those kind of adventurers you know i'm not um kind of uh what's your dave what's your next event like do you have a plan to do something because you did tell me that you would take me on one mm. do i need two to three years training no just, no just two weeks <laughs> what is it do you have any plans or are you not bring your slippers yeah so. bring your slippers <laughs> slippers are, slippers are, they're, they're yes. one of the most important things you can have with you so whenever you find british I think, soaps i think whenever whenever you go on <laughs> exactly a little bit of soap a little bit of slipper quality, quality, quality slope you know body wash slip slip okay. soap <laughs> slip slop do you have a, a thought about as to what you're going to do yeah i mean i definitely i mean i spend my whole time thinking about adventures and just focusing at the moment really on the lost explorer getting that off the ground um and trying to sort of figure out you know that adventure um and kind of using it as a platform for for it will be the platform for you know pulling together more adventures um mm. we just finished a project in times square which was kind of fun um, where we recorded the sounds of nature down in the Amazon and then transported them back through an interactive app into Times Square. So oh, it was wow. 360 degrees of, of, of visuals around Times Square. We got given 57 screens and, and then created a walking app that you could then walk through and experience the Amazon spatially to the streets of New York, depending on where you were standing in Times Square or what, you know, if you're on 7th Avenue, it'd be dusk. And if you're on 6th Avenue, it was, it was, it was a mix of- Wow, uh, I didn't even amazing. know this. When was this happening? Yeah, so not, this, not long ago. This ran all of April. April. April um, and then we actually got a note wow. the other day from Times Square saying it was so successful, they're gonna make it a permanent exhibit inside of Times Square. That's wow. fantastic. Which is amazing. So we're pretty chuffed about That's that. That's almost like a um, Christo type you know site installation yeah. art project yeah i mean that that's that's the sort of um those, those kind of interactions i think are always fun you know and, and i think that's the and it's on that theme of inclusion yeah theme of inclusion breaking it down making it interesting you know not taking the traditional path and and i think that you know you, you know i think the sentiments that you were just talking about which talk to persistence and to you know making things accessible and not giving up on dreams and you know that project started in um I think it was 2010. I think I'd done quite a lot of acid, and I was sitting there. I was like, "Wouldn't it be amazing if, uh, if, if the, uh, if the, 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 we could bring nature into people's every into everyday life, everyday lives, and we would kind of prank people almost. You know, you'd be walking along at an ATM and instead of going beep beep beep, it might roar, or you'd walk past a tree and it would talk at you, or you would, you know, have these moments where you could actually kind of bring. Um, and elevate the sound of nature over the sound of humanity um, in, in, in everyday life. So you and actually did it, dude. You got Times Square to take some mushrooms. Yeah, we did. That's effectively what happened. Yeah, so it's we like basically. A giant massive ayahuasca trip. What it was. Everybody, all the but tourists. It, <laughs> and you actually did it. Yeah, we did. But that's what Dave does. He actually does it. Um, right. So that's actually what we did. We took a, we took a, um, a ceremony, an ayahuasca ceremony, and, and shaman from the Amazon, uh, from the Peruvian Amazon, from the Shishipo. I was just kidding, but this is actually what and, happened. And yeah, yeah. and we yeah. actually then transported it. We inverted the colors on the phone. So we used the primary colors of, of, of kind of purple and black. We inverted the colors um, um, to give this effect of what is lost. And actually then you invert the colors on your phone so that you, what you were seeing was nature coming back and it blocked out all the advertising around. And so it was this idea that nature is invisible around us, but it's the space between that that we need to rediscover and, and bringing and elevating that. Um, 
so in terms of adventures you know they're constant they flow and they're just you know they're all over the place and that took me five years to get it off the ground can i say one funny story it's always an adventure being around my brother for example i remember like one time last year i said dave i called him on a friday i said dave do you want to have lunch next week he said yeah how about tuesday i was like cool i'll call you in the morning so tuesday morning comes around i pick up my phone the ring is different like i'm like what's going on he picks up i said dude are we having lunch in an hour he says i'm in the rainforest i'm like look if you just didn't want to cancel you don't have to go all the way to fucking brazil i mean that's like dave i'm there in west hollywood trying to work out which vegan restaurant he's in a fucking tree in brazil i'm like where does that is typical he is like it's typical dave like he'll be in the rainforest where does does it all where does it come from yeah where does it i mean look to be totally frank like you Why know, not be rich? Y- yeah, I mean, and just be- <laughs> 999,000 out of a, you know, 100,000 people in your situation would just be a professional dilettante, right? <laughs> well, you could you could argue that maybe that is just being a professional dilettante. <laughs> a different version of it. Um, no, I mean, I think I've, I'm just far more interested in being outside and, and having the opportunity to travel and be curious and bring stories back and, and actually be able to do that in a way that is hopefully engaging and exciting is for an audience you know that may or may not listen is also exciting um you know and i and i, and I just I, always been this way yeah i mm. mean i just you know the 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 i think it's just been you know probably a combination of add and you know not wanting to be defined by one thing or sit still or you know you know we've got plenty of time to sit still at some point in your life and i think you know to be able to have an opportunity to go and do these things and not do them would be a crime and so to be able to go out to different locations around the world or meet different people and you know find that kind of everyday adventure um i think it's been always kind of the quest you know just to to do that you Mm -hmm. know to keep on doing that and you know there's 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 you know there's projects that kind of bubble up and you know i've got you know a number of interesting projects that are kind of you know out there and i and i realize that what you need to do is kind of I call it kind of the equation of curiosity where it's like dreams are the breeding grounds for adventures, adventures are the breeding grounds for stories and stories inspire more dreams. And that entire equation is pushed through by asking questions. And so to me, the first stage of any adventure is dreaming about it. And then the second stage is of the adventure is talking about it. And as mm-hmm. soon as you talk about it, it materializes, people grab onto it, it becomes real. And that's where the adventure really begins. And so by seeding ideas and, and popping them into, you know, people's psyche and, and, you know, just saying, look, here's an idea. Could we do this? You know, and that's that that goes from, you know, everything from, you know, sailing an iceberg to um, getting, you know, a seat for nature at the United Nations, which is what I've been working on as well. Um, to try and get nature represented at the table rather than on the table. And so having those kind of conversations and seeding them, I think, is really, you know, the sort of the first stage to any adventure, because at that point, it opens up the door for people to contribute and to, you know, seed things. And, you know, some of the stuff that I've been talking about that for five years is only now coming to, you know, fruition or, or, or there's a connection, you know, I mean, the other day I was... Um, fortunate enough to do a live Skype with Bertrand Picard as he was flying around the world on the solar impulse and he was coming into land. You know, this is a, a huge project um, to try and fly completely solo, uh, or, or sorry, to fly completely on solar, solar powered. solar-powered flight around the world, right? I mean, it's never been done, a huge project, huge undertaking. And, you know, here he is, you know, five hours before he lands in, in Abu Dhabi or wherever it was for his final, you know, touchdown of this epic voyage. And it's taken him years. And, you know, just connecting on on that idea of that, 
you know the the most um the most satisfying things often come at the end of a very long road and you have to kind of be willing to be wrong and and willing to um you know have setbacks and willing to fail and willing to um you know let go of certain notions and actually not just listen but unlearn right you know we go through life being told we need to learn but actually it's just as important to unlearn so that we have space to relearn and i think those kind of um pathways and and those you know those those lengthy periods of time where you're going will i ever get this project off the ground sometimes the the space in which you can kind of stop right and you you give up mm -hmm. and i think it's actually the, the space in which you allow good ideas to percolate so i realize that you know there will be years in which you know an idea will sit in the back of my mind and until there is a definitive reason for it to stop which often you know can can be something but often you know you try and make those you, you try and rationalize why you can't do it when actually you still can if you can allow them just to sit there and percolate and they still resonate to you three five six years later then they're good ideas and they deserve to be done mm -hmm. and and you land on them for a reason right i mean they they find you you know i think there's a sort of a, a, a an ethereal state around our planet in which you know ideas are shared and we either put our antenna up and grab them or we don't and that's why there's often shared ideas this idea of like morphic resonance right and the idea that we are you know we we can we, you know if we have a, a, an equation that needs to be solved and then we solve it um the answer is somewhere in our ethereal state and mm -hmm. it's probably been solved because in parallel someone solved it at the same time the answer now exists right and so yeah it's that same weird kind of spiritual thing that happens where sort of technological breakthroughs are made at the same time totally like and you'll see it with films planet. right i mean yeah. you'll do you know i mean like right. let's take hitchcock you yeah. know no one's done a film on hitchcock for years and then two come out at the same time That's no right. one does a film on the henry the, you know the <laughs> eighth or whatever it was and yeah. two come out at the same right. time yeah. and it's always the way you know you'll find there's these parallel paths and i think you know if you can remain receptive and open to um that kind of that idea that things can find you as much as you find things right that 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 these ideas just find you and then you have a responsibility you know mm -hmm. whether it was Hervé telling you you know physically telling you tell my story or whether it's a dream you have and you wake up from it and you write it down you may not look at that notebook for another three years but if in three years when you do look at it it's still there and it still resonates then then it's it's your responsibility to act upon that and i think there's a really nice thing about that you know there's always you know i'm constantly you know you're surprised at like oh well, i didn't know you did that and you know constantly doing kind of what i call these mini little adventures and i think you know there's the same thing it's like i'm sure f for years to come no matter what you do people always ask you what's next what's next what's next and you know we're fascinated by what's next because we always want to try and see forward when sometimes actually you know there's a beauty in just you know what's now right and and living in that moment and, and appreciating it and i think when you get involved in a big project i definitely you know you you go through these phases where you grow you know it was four years from inception to from idea to inception it was four years of, of kind of processing and living it and then and then then you do it and then the world wants to talk about it and by that point you're bored <laughs> You want to think about what's next and you kind of let it go. And then you realize, actually, I'm still doing talks today. I'm still talking, in fact, about right now about the plastic. Yeah, right. And in and your actually, mind, that was so long ago. Yeah. And right? in a way, you've just got to you go through these cycles. You go, actually, it's part of my identity and it will be part of what I do. And, and it spawns so many other little tentacles of, of ideas or, or, or adventures and and you know there are moments where you go god I, you know what is next you know what is another plastiki and then you realize that actually there shouldn't ne there will never be another plastiki but there'll be iterations there'll be adventures that still can you know capture 
people's imagination. And I think for me, it's sometimes now less about the literal adventure, saying that adventure resides in everything, right? It's how you view it is, is what's important, right? And, you know, adventure is everyday life. You know, it's how you go from, you know, your home to your office or your school or your place of work. I mean, that is an adventure, right? If you embark on writing a script, it's an adventure. If you embark on a podcast, it's an adventure. I mean, you've been living an adventure for four years and it's how you phrase it and how you present it and how you view it and, and the nourishment that you can, you know, sort of abstract from it. And I think the, the, the idea of um, an adventure to me goes way beyond just A to B. And in a traditional sense, like the kid who did the seven summits and the thing, it's incredible, but it's very A to B orientated. It's like, I start here and I end here. And actually, I think the truest adventures are the ones that take you beyond A and B, but they take you into this sort of alphabet of, of, of different ideas and opportunities and growth. And, and I think that's where you start to, to really kind of find the magic of what it means to live an adventurous lifestyle. And I think it's, you know, I always say, if you can choose between fizzy or flat water, then you're super blessed. You know what I mean? Like, I think if I did a, another book, it'd be called Fizzy or Flat, <laughs> right? I mean, you have nothing to complain about. You know, there's two billion people around yeah. the world who have don't even have access to water, and we can sit here and go, oh, I have the fizzy. No, no, I have flat now. Or no, I have tap. Or, you know, like, we're, we're so blessed. If you have that space, you know, which I feel, obviously, I do as we sit here with fizzy water on the table, it... um. It, it, it's a constant reminder that we do have to act and and live that adventurous lifestyle. We, if we're lucky enough to have that opportunity, you know, we have the space to live that opportunity. Then then we should live it, and we should be adventurous, and we should you know look at those everyday moments. And it doesn't always have to be going on a hike or you know, which by the way is just a walk. I can't figure that out in America. Everyone gets in Gore-Tex and they walk yeah. and they call it a hike. A hike. I'm like, well, we're hiking. What? What? Where yeah, are you hiking? Exactly. Where are you hiking? You're walking. You're not you know pulling I mean? up your trousers. Yeah, You're like, not what? hiking them up. But I, not, I, I mean, I love people. Sasha it. doesn't hike, though. I, d- I, I do. You do? I do. I have this special this thing called a gro- hike machine. Gro- <laughs> it's just sort of virtual reality. Part. I just sit there <laughs> yeah. and experience it. No, yeah. I, Dave does it for me. I do oh. it for him. I'm his, I'm his personal hiker. <laughs> <laughs> That's actually my next. It's so weird. That's a really good idea. I'll explore it personally. But, you know, listen, there's always adventures. I get, you know, constantly contacted by different people. I've done some great trips. I'm about to do... Um, you know, a, a, an actual ser- another TV series, um, which I'm not allowed to talk about uh-huh. at the moment. But that's um, again, you know, looking at kind of what I would call, um, you know, these certain doctrinal signatures of cultures around the world that um, allow certain cultures to flourish and be, um, you know, or be distinctly recognised. And I and I, and I think again, you know, to me, that is as a beautiful adventure. This idea of untapping human potential through cultural nuances and being able to look at those things and 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 kind of express them in in a way that is hopefully accessible and and off the back of that you know it, it spawns all these other different you know spin-offs of of kind of you know contextualizing what it means again to be human living on a human planet living in a connected system where we all really want to share and and and, and have the same value sets right no matter where you are it might be interpreted different but we all really just want you know food shelter water to love we want curiosity we want to be you know part of something we want to feel safe we want to feel you know loved and adored and, and also and, i think with any creative project you also want to feel your life in yeah. the moment that you're living it because i think like many people i sort of my my i have a predisposition to either think, think about the past or the future but sort so sometimes robbing myself of the present experience sometimes with creative projects just the experience of doing them mm. can be more valuable than the end result mm-hmm. like you yeah. can make a movie sometimes 
you know, who cares about the movie? Yeah. But what you did when you actually totally. did it, what I got from making Anvil, forget the film, just the actual experience that I went through in creating that with those guys, you know, that was more valuable of than course. the film for me. Totally. But, but, it, but it's not always the case because sometimes... The film you, is just your, your, your way of being able to share that experience exactly. communally. But the actual three years or whatever that you spend, and, and like you said, it's interesting, the timeline for your projects is similar sometimes to movies. You know, it can be from an idea to being out there can be four or five years. years. Yeah. In, in Herve's case, Herve, 20, it's been 20, 20 years. 23, 24. Yeah. You know, but then there are other things that happen really quickly. But sometimes, you know, it, it's so interesting. But it's so like what I'm trying to do in creativity is to try and feel who I am right now. What's going on? Where where am I? Like what? what Because I, I, I often will rob myself of the moment by thinking about, you mm -hmm. know, what does this mean? And what's going to happen mm -hmm. here? And what's the result? You know, and it's like the result is ultimately not really down to me most yeah. of the time, yeah. but the experience can be. So I, I sort of try and focus on what I control, which is to have the absolute best enriching experience as I'm doing something. So what is the daily routine that you practice to try to tap into your creative self? Well, actually, I was years ago that that uh, guy I mentioned, Sean McCauley, Sean McCauley, who did Eddie the Eagle, um, he turned me on to the artist way like probably 20 years ago. And I, I, mm -hmm. I would say that I've dipped in and out of that for you know for all of those years right. and it's such a brilliant thing and i know that some people you know like oh it's so hippie but you know no, i love it i do it all the time i think valuable. you might have been the person to i think i probably passed it, it on to, to you and i think there was a group of us right. who, who sort of right, right. all you know but i've continued to it's amazing a lot of those it really is amazing it's a 12 week sort of you know spiritual recovery kind of experience program and it's it's a little bit hippie-ish if you if you if you're but if you're worried but you know i i just focus on you know, ultimately it works. It's so incredible in terms of probably some of my greatest creative things have have been born out of actually taking the action of doing the artist's mm -hmm. way. So I would say that's a great thing. And then that sort of touches many other things. So I, you know, generally I wake up, I write longhand, you know, three you pages. You write longhand? Yeah. I didn't three, know that. Three pages. And you're kind of a night owl though, right? Yeah. Do you write, do you, do you have set hours when yeah, you write? Yeah, I mean, usually when I'm writing, it's like, I have two speeds, which is like total laziness for months or like absolute mania 24 seven. Right. I'm like not very like measured, but at an average time, it's probably I'll write in the day, but you know, and then, I, you know, it just, it really depends. Sometimes mm -hmm. I'll stay out really late and do stuff. Mm -hmm. But um, yeah, I, I, I also, I'm changing my plan all the time. I don't have a set plan like i'm like how do i do no plan no plan zero plan just kind of follow but i know that you you go through these periods where you're you'll you'll like check into a hotel like yeah. down the street from your house well, it's good to just, be able to have just food like at 2 lock, when lock yourself up for yeah like exactly. a week exactly know? and just go and finish mm -hmm. something yeah i've done that quite a lot in the past it can be really really good and yeah. unfortunately it's incredibly expensive right so i would really recommend <laughs> well, that like not... raises the stakes though right because you have yeah. to have something to show Wait, this for is it costing like... 3.95 a night plus yeah. tax and food and david you know adventure and imagination are closely allied, you know, bedfellows, right? So how do you tap into your imagination for the things that you do? You know, I mean, I think that the, um, the, the main sort of thing that I enjoy with the life that I've managed to be fortunate enough to kind of create is just to surround myself with people, you know, like Sasha and yourself and people who, you know, are constantly evolving and working on themselves or thinking about new ideas or, or, or you know, the, the ability to, you know, um, 
just sort of be in that mind trust or that mind circle of, of great people doing great work is really inspiring. And I think, it, you know, it's like if you go out and play a game of tennis against someone who's average, you, you know, your game drops. And if someone's really good, you know, your game picks up. And I mm -hmm. think it gets better. And I think to be surrounded by and be blessed enough to be surrounded by people who are doing amazing things and seeing people do amazing things the whole time, you know, it makes you want to do more. It makes, you know, I think there's a, you know, there's an insatiable appetite that comes from, you know, taking an idea all the way through to its inception and actually, you know, really, you know, going, as you say, through the stages of that, being comfortable with the stages, you know, and, and all the processes and, and, and living it and feeling it. And then, you know, that, that comes to fruition and you see it that's there's a there's a there's a kind of a i think an addictive kind of um flow to that because you see it and you're like i love that it feels good it feels satisfying and also for me i have to clear things out of my mind like i i have to do it or it just clutters my mind mm -hmm. so a lot of the time it's about sort of focusing on those kind of you know beats and saying okay what can i get done how do i do it how do i find my way and and trying to remain as you know sort of present as possible you know i think it's important what dave says also about having inspiring people around you yeah you know, you're, the, you're the sum total of the you yeah. know basically the five people you spend the most time with yeah i mean there's i find there's this one guy i know here in la who i find incredibly inspiring called michael neal he's an unbelievable guy he's written several books he's i guess he's a life coach right? <laughs> he's a friend of mine but he my god that guy is incredible and i would urge people to look him up and uh, check out his work because he's he's extraordinary and has certainly personally as a friend has really helped me a lot in terms of crystallizing the things that you know i want to do and and more importantly you know being able to clarify the practical steps that one needs to take in order to do them you know because mm. it, it's so easy what well, i don't you know i think i i was always that young guy growing up who was like filled with potential you know and my fear was i'll never actualize any of it you know people like michael neal or dave or whatever you know they inspire you to like fuck that man fuck that narrative of you won't live up to your potential just make it happen like yeah. stop wasting time like worrying about it just do it you know and i think that is an absolutely key thing i i, I learn from you know other people and so i always you know, I always sort of aspire to have those types of people in my energy field. Because if you've got people who are sort of, you know, have given up around you, guess what? You, you end up giving mm -hmm. up. Yeah. You end up feeling hopeless. So you have to change. It takes a lot of strength because I think we, we can all get used to, you know, there's something familiar about being stuck, which is why I think a lot of people are stuck. Because at least it's safe. You know, you kind of know what you're dealing with. You, your life stays small. It's actually quite awkward and unsafe to, to change that pattern. But my feeling is that if you're willing to go through just a little bit of pain and uncertainty and insecurity, on the other side of that is you can find people who will lift you up and, and, and allow you to kind of not be the victim and not be the, oh, you know, I had so much potential and now I'm just going to drink a lot of booze or, <laughs> or, or be envious of other people who have had success, right. you know, and I think that's a, a good guide. It's like... It's in, showing up. Showing up. Showing up and having the courage to try, mm -hmm. right? And my experience is that when whenever I'm able to, it's not about not being afraid, though. Yeah, because everyone's you can be, afraid. You can be afraid, and most people are. I mean, listen, man, I'm on the set that. of a film, and I'm directing Anthony Hopkins and Helen Mirren, and I'm literally shitting a brick. I mean, I'm, like, scared. 
I mean, that's how it is, because I'd never done that before. So you, you, you have to understand that if you're not feeling terrified, you're not making progress. Yeah. It's like, or you're not scary. pushing yourself, yeah, you're or not you're not pushing yourself. yourself. And I think it's not just like showing up and, and making the effort. It's sustaining that effort when things don't go the way you want them to go. Because invariably, like Dave says, you know, part of success, I think at least, is being really able to embrace failure and learn from it and go, okay, how do I, how do I not, or, or you know, or recognizing the limits, you know, of control. Like, actually, you can't control all these things, mm-hmm. you know. So, you know, again, Anvil, right? It doesn't matter whether you win or lose. It matters that you give everything. You really try. Because if you keep on giving everything, eventually you win. Eventually. <laughs> Maybe a lot to get through. But I'm, I, I do think that's that's been my experience, at least, anyway. I think that's a beautiful place to wrap it up. But I have one. Actually, I have a, a couple really quick questions. First one is, <laughs> are there any books uh, that you keep going back to that have been instructive or particularly inspirational or books that perhaps you give out to friends? Hmm. Um, probably not, actually. No? No. Um, I mean, I, I'm a, I'm a, I read a lot of books. You have Diary of a Toilet Trader. I do. That's something that you pass on. I, I have a lot of books. There's a lot of books in this in this house there are a lot of books but i i'm I'm a i i you know i um i also um i mean there's a you know i'm not a great believer in giving people books and i and i take because because i feel like you know there's only a limited amount of stories that you can read right and i think there's there's only so much time in a day to read and i i feel there's a quite big responsibility to hand a book on to someone um, one because you very rarely get it back, um, which is very true. Well, then you know, the person receiving it then feels this. They feel slightly a, a burden and an obligation to read it. To read and then it. they end up and really they, hating but you because they, they haven't. Read it, yeah, then they, they end up resenting you. you. And yeah, it's weird. It's awkward, and it's like it's just it's, there's a lot of politics and book sharing. Do you know what I mean? I just I feel like I feel like it's overrated. You know what I mean? Like if you want to figure out what book to read, go to a book club. You know what I mean? Um, <laughs> He agrees. Oh, the chorus. Banjo yes. is over on that. Banjo's freaking. Uh, yeah. Banjo is freaking out. I know, it's, I, I know what you're going to say. What I am think. I going to say? I don't know. Answer the question. No, what am I going to say? I'd like to know. No, tell me. What am I going to say? You're going to say uh, The War of Art by Stephen Pressfield. That is one that I read that I got a lot out of. The War of Art by Stephen Pressfield. This is being a writer. Amazing. I'm not giving it to you because then we'll never speak again. Yeah, yeah, don't give but it is actually brilliant. It's brilliant. That's a really great one. Obviously, The Artist's Way, Julia Cameron. Yeah, any Any, anything by Michael Neal is just great. Just right. get into that. But, you know, I read like just a little bit of old literature like Dickens is great. Mm-hmm. I come back to it. Of course, um, anything by the great English writers, most right. particularly reading Shakespeare's plays, which I have started to do recently. And um, the Scottish play. I mean, there's so many great things. You know, it doesn't matter what point in your life you're at. You know, I used to study this stuff at school. You know, you read it five years after school. You read it ten years after school. Every time you circle back round to these incredible texts, you learn something new because you're looking at it through the prism of your experience in life at that moment. So you you you, you go another things, angle. Yeah, you, sure. different things come out. Like oh, I didn't know. Wow, my God, that's brilliant. As you know, so I think that's what's really interesting is. Um, being able to revisit things that you think you've read, actually reading them at different points, you are, it's often is a very different experience. I love that. Last question is for Sasha. Oh, shit. I have to verify something. Oh, my God. Is it true? Is it true? <laughs> that oh, yes. yes. At one point in time. Could yeah. be. As his lawyer, 
I yes. wouldn't answer this. I think we should end I'm this now. Let's leave. You were approached by Jaguar to do voiceover on a commercial, and you duly <laughs> instructed them that it is not called Jaguar. It is called Jaguar. That is absolutely true. And from that point forward, yeah. that car company has been known as Jaguar. That's absolutely true. Yeah. What happened was I was <laughs> that is just a, in like, nineteen in 19, that's like a mind bending. Okay, so what crazy. happened basically was I made my first. <laughs> like, that's a mic drop moment. I know. My, my, my first my first film was a, a Scottish hairdressing comedy called The Big Tees, top of the genre. Top of the Craig genre. Craig Ferguson, who I love, who, who who I worked on the script with and starred as Crawford Mackenzie, a rather camp Scottish hairdresser, mistakenly invited to the World Hairdressing Championships. Um, the casting director of that film, Chris Nicolau, called me into a, a casting room and said, uh, I'm also casting this voice commercial, will you go and read this thing? So I read this thing, and it was like Burwood, Mahogany, interior, you know, some bullshit about some car. Anyway, I get a call six months later, and the call is, dude, you're the new voice of Jaguar. I'm like, what? <laughs> so I ended up doing, doing the voice of Jaguar, and uh, I could do the commercial for you if you'd yeah, like. Yeah, I want to hear okay. it. Yeah. <clears throat> Jaguar XJR, Rob Report, 1999, car of the year. Okay, that was my first commercial. I did two years of it. I made an absolute fortune. And uh, it was the craziest thing ever. I had three auditions and I got three jobs. The weirdest one I ever had was on my... I did a Virgin Mobile thing. And then I did... uh, They asked me to do the History Channel, but like not in America. So I did it in like Singapore, Malaysia, whatever. So my line for was the History Channel, where the past comes alive. Right, so I did that. Okay. So then I went to Shanghai in about 2002, and I was staying at this place called the Jinjiang Tower, which is this like corporate hotel. And I was asleep and I had terrible, terrible jet lag. And I got woken by myself on the television at 4.30 a.m. going, the History Channel, where the past comes alive. And I had a fucking acid trip. I'm like, I have woken myself up in Shanghai. (laughs) So I did that, but then they said to me- some bizarre- I know, it's like some fucking bizarre meta thing. So they they said to me, look, look, man, you you could get these jobs, but then I had to take it all full time. I've had to like do that, and I just said, you know what, I'm not, I can't do that. So I just <laughs> I gave up, but it was really quite fun. At least you got something to fall back on. I do. You do. <laughs> I do There's have that Jaguar commercial. I'll show it to you. Yeah, it was really great. fun. Is it online? Uh, I think I've got it. I'll show it to you. I all could right. put it online, but I don't think anyone would be interested. That's so great. But it was yeah. But it was really true. It was accidentally. <gasps> I got the job because uh, Gary Oldman at the time was too expensive and I was the number two choice. But it was exactly that because I said it's Jaguar. That should be in your CV, number two to Gary Oldman. Number two to Gary Oldman. So they, they were pronouncing it what? Well, the English guys who'd been doing the commercials before said uh, 1-800-24-Jaguar, right? And I said in London, we say Jaguar, which is exactly how we say Jaguar. it. And in America, they thought all British people did not say it the real way. So obviously they'd been modifying it. So when I said it the real way, they went, that's brilliant. And then I became the voice of Jaguar. A career star was born. <laughs> <laughs> all right, you guys. Thanks so much. Thank you, man. Yeah, I appreciate Real it. Pleasure. We did it. You feel all right? Sasha, are you good? I am so happy, man. I feel I'm a little good. bit dirty. But you, why do you feel yeah, dirty? Just a little dirty. Uh, let's go to a hammam. Yeah, let's do that. All right, no. we're washing off. With fine British soaps. Listen, Rich, you're and a... products from The Lost Explorer. Could, yeah. Products from The Lost Explorer. Yes. Can you also do a shout out to my cousin, Michelle Kasoy in Toronto? Michelle. 
Why How do you, you feel not, about it? Why are you not here enjoying why is this conversation not here? in person? Do you know us? that she is a one-woman evangelical group for you in Toronto? She's gone to that. all her friends. She, you inspired her to do a half marathon. Oh, that's great. And she is now, because of you, considering doing the full marathon. That's Rich, fantastic. can she do a full marathon? Absolutely. That's damn right. Absolutely. I think she can. Congrats. That's amazing. Very cool. Well done, Michelle. Well done, Michelle. We yeah. love you, Michelle. We love you. Only this one is, of us, us knows clapping you. as you walk yeah, over yeah, the finish yeah. line. So, there we go. I said walk, I meant run. <laughs> she may be in a wheelchair, however, yeah. she'll get across the line. David, if people want to check out your Lost Explorer stuff, how do they do that? Um, they can open up the nearest trash bin and they'll probably oh, find some of it. No, no, they go to the, just the lostexplorer.com. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, also on Sculpt the Future, which is uh, some of the foundation work we're doing. So you'll find some other bits on there as well. Cool. And your yeah. DR Explorer on Twitter. DR Explorer on Twitter and the Lost Explorer on Instagram. Nice. And Sasha is <laughs> not, quite no, absent. Not, not, not absent from all you social media. Totally no, there's no pressure. You're one of the only life. friends of mine that has absolutely zero footprint on social media. Well, I'll whatsoever. tell you why. Because I actually said, I wanted to find a friend. And a friend said, well, sign up to Facebook, right, to find up this friend of ours. So I signed up to Facebook for one hour. And I got four hits from people I had absolutely no interest in seeing on ever again and i just was like you know what this is not that was it it. that was your entire it was one afternoon on facebook which was a living hell and then i was like forget it have people in the industry like sort of pressured you to try to do it yeah like like lots of people have but i mean like you know it's just i'm listening man i'm just old you are it's true (laughs) it's ultimately i don't know i'd like kind of the fact that i don't have to deal with like people i went to school with 40 years ago who I didn't like then, and I probably don't want to hang right. out with now. So if you're intrigued by Sasha... Go to Lost Explorer. Will you pass on no messages? I'll pass on He'll pass on messages Lost Explorer. Yeah, I'll yeah, pass them right. on. They'll get lost. And uh, hopefully I can hoodwink you guys into coming back and sharing a little bit more. We would love that, so, man. But let, so let's much. not forget this is your podcast, man, and you, have, uh, you are an amazing man. Thank you for all the good, guys. positive shit that you've spread yeah. around the world. The positive inspiration. Peace. Peace. Plants. Plants. Oh my God, are you kidding me? How fun was that? Did you guys enjoy that? Those guys are just fantastic. The only thing that's nagging at me is that I know there's so much more to each of them that we just didn't get to today. Like I said, we barely scratched the surface. So perhaps I can cajole them to come back for another uh, episode two of the Sasha and David show or even cajole them into coming on individually so I can get down to brass tacks and uh, track the trajectory, the arc of their respective lives and get down to uh, the nitty-gritty of what makes those guys tick. Uh, In any event, if you want to learn more about David and Sasha, the best way to do that is to check out the show notes on the episode page at richworld.com. i got tons of links and resources to take your infotainment, your edification beyond the earbuds, Uh, and we put a lot of time into compiling those, so it's worth notice. Uh, Thank you so much for everybody sharing the show with your friends and on social media and around the water cooler. Thank you for leaving a review on iTunes. If you have not subscribed on iTunes, please make a point of doing that. It really just takes a second. It really does help us out a lot. Uh, And thank you for all of you out there who have made a habit of using the Amazon banner ad for all your Amazon purchases. That's just fantastic. It's been so supportive to us. Amazon does not charge you anything extra on your purchases, but they kick us some loose commission change, and that allows me to uh, keep the bandwidth flowing to you know travel to sit down with the amazing guests that I share with you guys and increase the uh, production value of the show all kinds of good stuff if you are 
motivated to support the show even further, we set up a Patreon page. You can find the banner ad for that right next to the Amazon banner ad. And thank you to everybody who has supported us. We really greatly appreciate it. Um, If you're interested in hearing from me via email uh, every Thursday with a free, short, weekly rundown of some tips and some tools and some resources, just things I've enjoyed, found helpful, uh, you can sign up for that at richroll.com. Again, it's free. I'm not going to bug you with spam or anything like that. It's just cool things I've come across that I want to share with people. And as social media becomes so diffuse, I just find that sending an email is the best way to maintain communication with those of you out there who want to be connected with me and with the podcast. Uh, of course, if you're looking for some plant power swag and merch needs, go to richroll.com. We got signed copies of Finding Ultra. We got the Plant Power Way sign. We got cool t-shirts. We got tech tees, all kinds of stuff to uh, fly your affiliation with the plant power movement. I want to thank everybody who helped put on the show today. Jason Camiolo for audio engineering and production. Sean Patterson for help on graphics. Chris Swan for production assistance, help compiling the show notes, and keeping my life in order. And theme music, as always, by Analemma. Thanks for all the support, you guys. I love you. Let me know what you thought of today's episode by shouting, uh, giving me a shout-out on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram, any of those places. And uh, I will see you guys back here next week. Peace. Plants. Have a good one.